Welcome back, my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredis. It's episode six of 11. We're passing the halfway point of book one, but less than 10% of the way through the five novels if we go by page or word count. This amazing journey through what we thought we knew is still nice and new. And I have a little bit of cat thunder going on. We have cats hunting each other around the house at the moment. That makes for fun times. Real quick, before we get started, thanks to Mehrab, who pointed out a small mistake I made in the previous episode. I pointed out that it was Pacell who uh, counseled to, uh, Ares to not open the gates when that was backwards. It was Varys who said, don't open the gates. And Pycelle said, oh, you can trust Tywin, which, of course, is I just flipped that in my head. I don't think anyone was too confused by that. Everybody knows that Pycelle's a Tywin fanboy. And we'll see more of that in this episode. I like that the first time you said Pycelle right there, you said Pissell. <laughs> Pissell. <laughs> He's more like piss and less like pie. <laughs> Thank you to Nina Friel for helping us out with timestamps. We're going to try to make these episodes a little bit easier to navigate through by putting timestamps in for each chapter. And with that in mind, I'm considering us releasing the episodes uh, pod-wise individually. In other words, each chapter separately. Uh, They'd still be released on the same schedule. It would just be, you know, shorter 20 to 25 to 30 minute episodes parsed out with the title of of each chapter for each episode We can do that sort of thing now because we have an engineer, we have uh, our own editor that we have um, on sort of on staff, and his name is Ben, so we had to have uh, someone named Ben because then he can be our Ben-engineer. Yeah, of course, we had to do that. I think it would probably be good if some people emailed us or commented or anything if this will affect them releasing it via podcast form, whether people really want it or really don't want it. That's right. For patrons, we can do both. We can have them all together. We can have them because it's the private feed. We can have options, but um, it's also applies to the main feed. So yeah, let us know what y'all think about that. It wouldn't add any um, excess length, really. There would just be the, 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 you know, the few seconds of intro music. So it really wouldn't uh, space things out too much, but it would make things easier to navigate through, especially when you're coming back. If you want to check out a specific chapter, if you want to come back to it and hear our analysis of it, it might be a little bit of a hassle to find that amidst a bunch of episodes, even if we have the timestamps listed, which we do. But anyway, so yeah, let us know what you think about that. If, we, if we're going to change, we'll probably wait till Clash and, and implement it then. Um, so we have time to think about it. Anyway, let's get to it. We try to keep the announcements short. Let's get right to the content. We've got this time Eddard 7. The gang finishes the tourney. A.K.A. the one with the breastplate stretcher. Tyrion 4. The gang fights Vale Clansman. A.K.A. The one with Larry, Moe, and Curly. <laughs> <laughs> we have Arya 3. The one where Arya hunts cats and overhears Varus mm. and Illyrio. Sorry, this is all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I am completely lost because I put them all throughout the document. And the beginning of, if, if you're confused about why I'm messing up, it is because it is not in the document where it should be, but it's okay. Aziz can read them all. Eddard 8, the gang argues over killing Danny, a.k.a. the one where Ned quits being hand. Catelyn 6, the gang goes up a mountain and visits the Eyrie, a.k.a. the one where they ride mules at night. At our nine, yes, that's three Ned chapters this time. This is the one where he faces Jamie in the street, a.k.a. the one where Ned breaks his leg. And Daenerys 4, the gang goes to face Dothrak, a.k.a. the one where Danny smashes Viserys in his stupid face. All right, at our seven, 
the gang finishes the tourney, a.k.a. the one with the breastplate stretcher. Let's get right to it. He, Ned, uh, or Barristan, says he stood vigil for uh, Sir Hugh himself. And that's another chapter where Ned is suffering from lack of sleep. That's yet again in play here. And uh, this doesn't help with the old brain piece, the old think uh, thinking you know, muscle that he uh, doesn't use enough. And a good example being when Ned feels in his gut that the murder of John Aaron and Bran's fall and the dagger are all related. Uh, no. Well, Ned, they're not related. Not really. But first-time readers will certainly believe it at this point. They're definitely following Ned and, they, and believing that he's mostly on the trail of what's right here. Robert actually shows a few hints of decency in this one, admitting he was wrong about Joffrey and Micah. And, of course, he's actually funny. Yes, yes, both you, yes, both of you. You heard the hand. The king is too fat for his armor. Go find Sir Aaron Santagar. Tell him I need the breastplate stretcher. Now, what are you waiting for? The boys tripped over each other in their haste to be quit of the tent. Robert managed to keep a stern face until they were gone. Then he dropped back into a chair, shaking with laughter. Sir Barristan Selmy chuckled with him. Even Eddard Stark managed to smile. Always, though, the graver thoughts crept in. And apologies from me. <laughs> I am still trying to figure out how to read the chat and read quotes. <laughs> we, she's wearing many uh, hats and has many arms all at once. And I have to unmute myself before I read the quote. So it's, <laughs> it's a lot. I'm sorry. Indeed, Ned, this is a setup for us. As Ned's next chapter starts with Robert raging that a teenage girl must be murdered. So really, this, this, this coolness from Robert, this, this humor, this charisma is just a short-term thing, just a diversion from the man he's become. And these two boys are Lancel and Tyrak, both of whom have at least modest importance later. We'll speak about them another time, but you know that Lancel and Tyrak are important. Slain by a Lannister bannerman before Ned could speak to him, could that be mere happenstance? He supposed he would never know. What and a setup. <laughs> no. The reader is supposed to be all, of course, it's not mere happenstance, but, well, actually it is. Sure, Gregor wanted to kill Sir Hugh. That was no accident. But it is happenstance that Gregor's target happens to be a man Ned wanted to speak to about a plot involving the Lannisters. And happenstance that Gregor is a Lannister bannerman. So that is kind of random. Uh, and first-time readers are no doubt fooled by all this. Robert threatens to kill Barristan, and in the next chapter, he'll threaten to kill Ned. It's basically Robert in a nutshell. Just as he's ruled by the simplest pleasures, he just roars and threatens things he doesn't like. Let's talk about the tourney. It's the tourney part two, electric... Nah, never mind. <laughs> Loris uses that memorable trick to distract Gregor's horse, and since we're wondering, you know, where are they now and all that, we wonder if Loris and the Tyrells are lying to Cersei via Orane Waters about his grave injuries. He supposedly has a crossbow bolt in him, a mace blow, and, and worst of all, covered in boiling oil. But is Cersei gets lied to a lot in Feast, and maybe it's not what really happened. Especially because Cersei is being told what she wants to hear quite a lot in A Feast for Crows. But let's get back to now. As usual, there's foreshadowing. Loras beats Jamie here in the tourney, and later Jamie thinks quite a lot about how similar Loras was to him at the same age. Talented, practiced, handsome, rich... It's a changing of the guard in a manner of speaking, and indeed, soon enough, Loras joins the king's guard. He doesn't replace Jamie in it, but he does replace Jamie as the, you know, most talented, most greatest fighter in the batch. Somehow, Gregor does too, meaning get into the king's guard, though 
as Robert Strong. So three of these four are in the Kingsguard at the end of A Dance with Dragons, and Sandor, the fourth, is in it for a while, but not at the end of A Dance with Dragons. While Robert Baratheon is someone who threatens to kill when he gets angry, Gregor is more of the actually kill when he gets angry type, and he does get angry a lot. Gregor suffers from blinding migraine headaches, which fuel his killing rages. It doesn't really, it just certainly doesn't excuse them, but it does give him a little more, a little more characterization. Uh, he's one of the more two-dimensional characters, but even George's two-dimensional characters have other things going on that make them the way they are. Uh, this does seem to be intentional, meaning uh, his similarity to an animal. Um, he's described as an animal so often as a beast and things like that, or as a mountain, which <laughs> isn't a human or a beast, really. So is Clegane Bowl a thing in the books? Obviously, having these two fight here is um, reminds us of that possibility. It's really brief. Uh, just because Loras jousting Jamie is meant to show that metaphorical replacement, not it's not foreshadowing that they'll fight later. So I'm not sure what we're seeing here. I, I'm a bit dubious on Clegane Bowl in the books, but it's certainly possible, certainly not unlikely. And if Gregor versus Sandor here is meant to foreshadow that they'll duel later, this doesn't really hint at who's going to win. Perhaps because no one will. I mean, maybe that's a metaphorical statement on revenge. It isn't ever really a win when you achieve it. And I do love that Sandor kneels here as, as Gregor's blade passes over him when, when Robert yells, stop this madness. I think that's interesting. It's, it always seemed a little strange to me that he knelt in response to that. And I wonder if that's, you know, foreshadowing his later submission to higher ideals, um, perhaps even faith, as he lives on the quiet aisle. For now, for now. Well, for later, for in, in Feast for Crows. The later, later, we'll have to see. Now, this event that Robert was talked out of, the melee, happens with 40 fighters, and a few more names are introduced, like Thoros, and it's said that he has won melees before. He'll be pretty important later, too. And Angai the Archer, who is loaded with gold, but not for long, and he's still alive now, too. If you recall, the last episode, I mentioned a... Um, episode that we would do called Where Are They Now? I decided to hold off on that because, well, I kind of goofed slightly. For one thing, there's the tournament wasn't over. I wanted to base it on the characters in the tournament. And, well, Sansa's uh, part of the chapter was most of the tournament, but not all of it. So I wanted to make sure these other characters were included. Plus, we were rushing to leave for the convention in Nashville. So this time we're going to record it immediately after this episode is over. We'll switch off the live stream, record that, and put it up. It's going to include all the characters in the tournament, and mention where they're at now, um, whether whether the end of A Dance with Dragons and or the spoiler chapters. And, well, it's important to consider these because what we're trying to do is look at characters' full arcs, starting from the beginning. But if you can't recall where they're at at the end of A Dance with Dragons and the spoiler chapters, well, then you don't know where they're at. You can't consider their full arc. So it's really important to refresh this. Now, with the major characters, you don't really need to be refreshed. But these small characters like Angai and Thoros, especially characters that also appeared in the show... Might have forgotten where they're at at the moment. So look out for that. It'll be for patrons only. So good incentive to sign up if you are, haven't done so yet. All right. Ned goes back to the keep after the end of the tournament and the archery and all that and the melee. George R. R. Martin reminds us that though Ned has perhaps the best moral centering of just about any character, Ned is a rigid conservative thinker about a lot of other things. His inner thoughts on Sirius training techniques are rather unenlightened. You don't really kind of shake your head at him um, with regards to that, especially because we know how well it works out in the long run for Arya. Maybe as a first-time reader, you, you might wonder, well, how well is this going to work out for Arya? But now you know, well, 
as far as a character, Arya is uh, in dark spots. But as far as her skills, as far as her training, that there's little doubt there. So Varys comes up, showing his amazing disguise skills for the first time and openly mentioning the Red Keep's secret passages. Something we'll see firsthand not long after in Arya's awesome chapter. Varys does an amazing job saying the right things to Ned. He's such a good talker. He shifts Ned's focus from the search for John Aaron's killers to the killers who want to kill his friend, which is a really good thing to do. It's smart, right? After all, John Aaron is already dead. Can't save him. Robert, however, can be saved. And it helps a lot that his interests align with Ned's. He wants Robert to stay alive as long as possible. And he doesn't want the Lannisters and the Starks fighting yet. He wants them fighting later. Also, we find that out a few chapters from now. It helps even more that Sir Gregor killed Sir Hugh. It gives Varys this ability to send Ned on a wild Hugh's chase. (laughs) As we discussed already, Hugh's death was indeed happenstance as far as the conspiracies go. Varys tells us that the King's Guard is a paper shield, a a bit of foreshadowing for how much Robert's will is worse to them later, uh, with Barrison in mind and all that. Sansa was off listening to a troupe of singers perform the complex round of interwoven ballads called The Dance of the Dragons. Gotta love that being included here. Very cool. I like, I'd like to see a bunch of people dancing to The Dance of the Dragons. <laughs> the Dance of the Dragons. Yes, actual dancing. The Dance of the Dance of the Dragons. <laughs> yeah, of course, that's great foreshadowing. And you see that Barristan being mentioned here is important for The Dance of the Dragons. He's someone that uh, plays on both sides uh, coming up, perhaps, maybe, especially if he switches to young Griff's side, which is just a theory at this point. But regardless, he'll have fought for different dragons, even if they don't dance with each other. Uh, some notes from Joe Buckley here, very on point. As always, check out his Isle of Faces podcast for Scraps and Scrolls, additional notes on the chapters that we've covered here at History of Westeros. I love that Joe points out how this is a flash forward to how Barristan will be standing vigil over Quentin Martell much later in Dance with the Dragons. Speaking of the dance, right? And this also is, uh, Joe also points out how much more guilt this piles on Ned. First of all, Ned didn't want the tournament at all. And then a a young knight is killed in this tournament in his name. And, And of course, that's the point here that, that Hugh is just a boy. That's how they look at him initially. They're seeing him as, his, as, as, his, as a youth. And of course, Ned and dead children is just this common theme back and forth constantly. And you just feel sad for him constantly. We're just finding more ways for you to feel sad for Ned. <laughs> Joe also points out that Thoros survives the alliance breaking in makeshift war of the melee. It's like a microcosm of a Game of Thrones in a sense, because that's what we hear happens. The hair, their people team up and fight each other and back and forth. It is really a very miniature Game of Thrones. It's really cool. So Joe wonders if this is a sign that R'hllor or Thoros himself will be standing strong near the end or at least later uh, when it's important. Hmm, Good catch there, I got to say. Definitely, especially because we're looking at the joust results to, to see foreshadowing. So why not the melee too? Absolutely agree with that. Joe points out some signs of growth on Sansa's part regarding the Hound. Uh, she's already thinking he's going to win the tournament before she was cheering Loras and you know, she was worried Loras would get hurt, but that's who she was cheering for. And now she's just a little, maybe just a slightly more mature about it. After she had her chat with the hound, she's like, well, this guy is serious business. He told me about knights and all that. And the fact that he's, you know, hideous looking doesn't impact her opinion as much as it might have already. She's growing. And what else do we have? 
let's take a couple questions and then move on to the next one. I really do love that Robert uses the term kinging in this chapter. I'm going to have to try to use that word. Kinging makes you do this and that. And uh, I love also that Littlefinger bets on Jamie here, which is what he claims he did when he lost the cat's paw dagger to Tyrion. So that's kind of recalled a bit. Also, they notice that that Sir Hugh is in the pale dawn light that this scene takes place. And that's really interesting because the term pale dawn light comes up a lot throughout the books in various ways. The terms pale and dawn and light, uh, not necessarily all three right in a row like that, but it comes up a lot. Good one to, uh, take, to, to be keeping an eye on. And also this comes up yet again. Oh, Cersei is lovely to look at, truly, but cold. Cold, yeah. Again, we have this coldness around Cersei. We saw the her carved like a snow sculpture and with a face of ice. And here we have cold again. Just constantly the coldness of Cersei. Very interesting. I don't think it's such a theme in her POV later. I think it's more about... Her fieriness, you got her associated with wildfire and her eyes and all that. Do you think it's possible this is a, you know, foreshadowing? It might be. I'm really very curious because it just keeps happening and it's not something I really paid much attention to before. So I'm definitely curious what y'all think as well. Um, it may foreshadow things that are coming much, much later for Cersei or it may be completely faux. Yeah. But I'm I'm wondering what it could have pointed to because... If George's original intent for Cersei was to have her become undead, I there was nothing in the out, original outline about that that I can recall. So, yeah, there mm. is not anything about that, but there surely were other changes since that. Yeah, definitely a curiosity. Y'all keep an eye out for more cold, ice, snow stuff to uh, with regards to Cersei. Definitely keep an eye out for that. Patron John O'Donnell, our Facebook user John O'Donnell, I can't recall which mentioned that the the notion of dancing, like as in Serio and the water dancing and all that, is a callback to the prologue where Waymar Roy says, dance with me then. And there's this theme of dancing and sword fighting being uh, linked throughout the novels, but it's not always happening. Not everyone is a dancer. It's, you know, with, with Westerosi warriors, a lot of times it's more, as Serio says, blunt and brutal. I tell you, Sean is a dancer and he just can't seem to win those those melees and tourneys. He's no sword fighter. <laughs> He'll learn one day. One day, one day. Yeah, he did at Con of Thrones get a water dancing lesson from from Miltos, from Sirius. So next year. He's learning to dance. Yes, yeah, he's, he's learning, learning to dance. dance. <laughs> Delana Sand says that there's a mention of a triple spiral when they're describing different sigils on the tourney grounds. Do we know who the sigil belongs to or could this be that weird spiral the Night King kept drawing in the snow? That triple spiral is the is House Massey of uh, Stone Dance. That is their sigil. It's a blue spiral, a green spiral, and a red spiral, which reminds us of the trident. But I don't think that's linked in any way because Massey's hook is nowhere near the trident. It's at the tip. It's that little tip that sticks out on Blackwater Bay, uh, far up um, that little point there. So I don't think it refers to the Night King, but it's always good to keep an eye out for things like that. Brendan B. Uh, says, at the end of the chapter, Varys said, asking questions killed John, but knowing Littlefinger slash Lysa killed him, is this just a situation where Varys is being wrong? No, I don't think it's that Varys is wrong so much as that he, well, he doesn't know exactly what Littlefinger's up to. As he says to Illyrio in the Arya chapter we're going to handle in a few minutes here, he's, the gods know, alone know what Littlefinger's up to. So he doesn't actually know what Littlefinger's motives are, but uh, he's not wrong that Basically, being on the trail of John Aaron's murder is what got him killed. Uh, because, or not John Aaron's, yeah, of, of the bastards is what got him killed. 
because, well, Littlefinger did kill him. We're not sure why, but it is <laughs> because he doesn't want that happening when it happens. So it's a little bit convoluted, but I don't think Varus is wrong. It's just a matter of him not having all the information. All right, let's do Tyrion 4. The gang fights Vale Clansmen, a.k.a. the one with Larry, Moe, and Curly. And of the three, only Larry, a.k.a. Laris, survives the first battle. But he dies in the next battle, or the one after. We're not sure which, but he definitely doesn't make it to the Eerie. The other two are Curlicut and Mohor. Yep, there you go. Laris, mm. Curlicut, and Mohor. A bit sneakier than the Muppet Tullys or the dance era, uh, of the dance era, rather, but... You know, George loves to do that. It's also sneakier than the football references, but he likes to do that. Speaking of uh, the dance, George manages to weave in some very powerful foreshadowing regarding what type of person Tyrion really is and how he will handle himself in the long run. This is one of those things we've been really looking out for. Let's call this section Tyrion's Revenge, and it's a theme we should have fairly high on our list in terms of what we're expecting from his future. As he stood in the pre-dawn chill watching Chigan butcher his horse... Tyrion Lannister chalked up one more debt owed the Starks. Now, I think this is foreshadowing. As we know, a Lannister always pays his debts, but nah, not really, not in this case. When does Tyrion ever get revenge on the Starks? I don't think he does during his dance chapters. His, his hate is focused on his family and a lot of the other nobles of Westeros in general. I mean, he's not even really thinking about it. He certainly wasn't vindictive towards Sansa during their marriage. Uh, this line about debt may have m meant more back when the plan, again, as we remind you, that he was going to burn Winterfell eventually. That would have really hit hard for uh, paying a debt, wouldn't it? But instead, that job was given to Ramsay Snow. And this this line about uh, eating a horse is also followed by the talk of how Dothraki eat horses, which is another early tie-in with Danny's plots and the rest, but also Danny and Tyrion in particular. Now, this chapter does have other foreshadowing for connections to the future, not direct connections to Daenerys, so much as things he might do with her. For example, in return for Merlion's taunts, he does something very brutal in return. Now, okay, Merlion's awful, and he turns out to be even more awful uh, as much later he's going to try to sexually assault Elaine slash Sansa. But in return for mere insults, he hasn't done that yet. He hasn't done anything to Sansa yet. In return for just these mocking songs and words he uses, Tyrion, during the battle, after Merlion has already had a horse crash on him, during the battle, <laughs> Tyrion does this. The singer's hand came crawling out from beneath the dead animal, scrabbling in the dirt like a spider with five legs. Tyrion put his heel on the grasping fingers and felt a satisfying crunch. And that's brutal. That was his playing hand. I mean, yeah, Merlion sucks, but he is destroying this man's ability to make a living just in return for a taunt. And how much like Tywin is that? That is pure Tywin. And it's a, get just a, a small insult returned with over-the-top violence, right? And, hey, this is a bit of a theme, not just Tywin's revenge, but Tyrion being savage on a singer. In this case, in the next case, the one who blackmails Tyrion, well, you're going to blackmail the Hand of the King. That You, you got it coming in that case. I, I'm not blaming uh, Tyrion, I think, had to do what he had to do in that case. But in this case... Ooh, this is this is rough. So when Jenna Lannister later reveals that she told Tywin that Tyrion was the most like Tywin, we nod in agreement, don't we? But now, thinking about things like this, we nod in agreement with even more uh, emphasis. It's even more emphatic of a nod, because this is crazy, right? When Tyrion pulls that trigger because his father still won't value him, and I mean that crossbow trigger, oh boy, like that's, it all comes back to that, right? Or it comes down to that, and all this builds up to that. Tywin was disappointed in his own father, too, don't forget. This is uh, 
passing down across generations. It's another thing that he has in common with Tyrion. They both didn't like their fathers for very different reasons. And, of course, Tywin is slash was a savage MFer. This is who we're dealing with, right? This is Tyrion. This is Tywin writ small. We need to be very clear on that here. So the things that Tyrion might do, just think about how angry he is in A Dance with Dragons about what Westeros did to him, about all the nobles laughing at him in trial and, all, and turning on him. And it's a lot worse than a little bit of a mocking song. It's way worse than what Marillion did. And if Tyrion has that in mind for someone with just mere mockery, what's he going to have in mind for the whole continent that did this to him? The damage he can do with Danny's ear, uh, you know, with, him listen, with her listening to him and him guiding her a bit, it's, it's astounding, the potential here. So... There's no sure thing either. You know, maybe he'll turn back from the brink. We don't know yet. But this is one of those things we're particularly sensitive to in terms of hunting here. Clues. All right, let's talk about strategery. Hmm. As Tyrion agonizes over his own failure to deduce Catelyn's plan, I wonder if he shouldn't have wondered at her choice like I do. It's fair to say Catelyn knew her husband's position as hand would help the situation regarding Tyrion's capture, which that's an astute um, observation there. And the move Cat made in tricking her pursuit by announcing Winterfell as a destination, that was, that was slick. It helped avoid pursuit. But it sure does seem like the route she chose was just as dangerous, if not more so. Now, Tywin's men would not kill Catelyn. She'd be taken as a hostage. The clansmen, however, they don't take hostages. So, you know, that's one argument for why the Vale was more dangerous. On the other hand, when we get to the Vale a little bit later in, in Catelyn's chapter, we find out that the roads are more dangerous than they once were. So this, this, the, the current scenario of how dangerous the high roads are might be fairly recent, and maybe Catelyn just didn't know that. So that's I can buy that for sure. Maybe she just wasn't aware of the recent changes in how dangerous the roads were. Now Tyrion's other strategy here, something else that foreshadows his skills in the future, he shows he's really good at winning people over even when in captivity. He ends up doing that with Mord not long after. But here, it's even more astounding in some ways, it's, which is that he ascent, essentially recruits the best killer in the entire group to his side while a prisoner. Now, consider what he does at the end of the TV show. He's calling shots while in chains. He's running the Great Council, basically, while a prisoner. Now, compare that to scenes like this, where he's sort of in charge, or at least has power even when he shouldn't, you know, quote-unquote shouldn't. Check this out. Tyrion adjusted his stolen helm and took the axe from Bronn. He remembered how he had begun the journey, with his wrists bound and a hood pulled down over his head, and decided that this was a definite improvement. Lady Stark could keep her trust. So long as he could keep the axe, he would count himself ahead in the game. In the game. A game is lowercase here, but I think of it uppercase, right? And this, this, this theme just repeats itself, right, with Jorah. He works himself from a captive of Jorah to a member of the Second Sons. <laughs> it's great, right? Uh, so he's doing all sorts of cool stuff. Wait, was it the Second Sons or the Golden Company? Golden Company, my bad. Golden Company. And he does this with... Uh, you know, much later as well. He does this with Jamie. He does this with, it's just, it's just a recurring theme and I love it. I, I didn't, didn't piece it together with how much it might matter in the end for him. But now we have the show to maybe give us a little bit of a clue as to how much that matters. Now, some of this freedom that he's won is temporary because he's going to be taken right back away from him once he gets to the Erie. But then he'll start maneuvering his way out of that as well. Now he also here manages to sow some doubt in Kat's mind about his guilt with a few cutting lines, ending with the last lines of the chapter. 
As I was saying before we were so rudely interrupted, Tyrion began, there is a serious flaw in Littlefinger's fable. Whatever you may believe of me, Lady Stark, I promise you this. I never bet against my family. Yeah, well, I'm not sure about that, Tyrion. Just as he never really pays his debt to the Starks, he does, well, maybe not bet against his own family, but there is the matter of the fratricide and the coming wars against his family that are likely to happen. That's certainly more severe than betting against them, but I guess technically that's not a bet. (laughs) So I guess you can say that promise is technically correct. Mina points out it is the second son's. Apparently. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, you're right. It's the Second Sons. Well, Second Sons, not Golden Company. My bad. Thanks for the catch, Nina. I should have stuck with my first guess. <laughs> Ink Pots and all those guys. Hammer and Anvil. Nail. Those guys. Those fun characters. So let's take a few more notes from Joe and some questions from y'all and see where we're at. Joe points out that the butchering of the horse as a chapter really sets the scene that we mentioned with regards to names and status don't really matter here. This is not a matter of your noble birth giving you hostage status. This is just out in the wild, which uh, reminds us of the Dothraki overtones that we were talking about with the butchering the horse, the mentioning of the Dothraki, and the foreshadowing of ties to Danny. Very cool. Also, Joe points out this that the clansmen are a c- contrast for how strong the Dothraki are. You know, it's just this this fear from a potential invasion, and hey. The fact that they're eating horses is just just like the Dothraki would, right? Also, to me, I, it's a it's a harbinger for what's coming in, in the next Catelyn chapter, which is a lot of winter is coming foreshadowing. If these clansmen are, are starving now, they're doomed when winter comes. You got you to gotta think, unless something helps them out. Tyrion, maybe. Brian Eidolon asks, my favorite hidden one was always Greywater Watch's mobility. It's... Howl and it's Howl's moving castle. Yeah, <laughs> nice. <laughs> Kate Bertinsky says, Dothraki Customs had scant appeal for him. That's a great catch of a line. Conf- she wonders if that's going to come up with, uh, he's going to have conflicts with the Kalisar later. He's going to be bothered by the way the Dothraki behave as an army or as a, as a people, the way they interact with Westeros. Hmm? Could be, could be. Very good catch there. Brendan B. says, in this chapter, Curlicate threatens to remove Tyrion's tongue. Oh, very good catch. There is a longstanding theory out there called the Quiet Lion Theory. I believe it originally came from Hamfast 42. There's a lot of variations on it. One variation is simply, I think the original variation is that uh, Grayscale will creep up from inside him and take his tongue out. I think that version maybe is a little tinfoily, but the point is that there's lots of foreshadowing for Tyrion losing his tongue, maybe through Euron, things like this, maybe. Now, that would be awful because Tyrion's wit is amazing, but it would be, you know, and he's already lost his nose, so he doesn't need to lose another body part like his brother did. But he can still communicate yeah. with the written word. Definitely. Um, he can still write. You're right. And, and can, the people he would be communicating with, could a lot of them could read. Yeah, that's true as well. And, of course, as a POV character, we can see into his thoughts, whereas in the show, that would be the idea of them cutting Peter Dinklage's tongue out is just kind of nuts yeah, for I the know, TV that's, show that's to have really done that. really harsh to do that to Peter Dinklage. It's really going to hurt him. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I do it real, talk about really getting into the role. <laughs> And Brendan B. also points out that Catelyn opens a clansman's throat, which is perhaps foreshadowing for what she'll do to poor little uh, baby, not baby, but the jingle bell, um, Aegon. Also called Aegon, yeah. (laughs) All right, that is it for the questions for Tyrion 4. We'll have 
related questions at Catlin's chapter coming up. Doesn't she also get her throat slit? Yeah, she also gets her throat slit. You know, just in general, the throat slitting. Good point, yeah. Yeah. More and more, one slit throat leads to another. That's how it always goes, right? (laughs) Okay, here we go with Aria 3. Making good time today, folks. Stay with us. We've got, this is probably my favorite of uh, of the batch. The gang overhears Varys and Illyrio's plots, a.k.a. the one where Arya chases cats. The gang, in this case, being Arya and, wait for it, no one. Yeah. There's some really, really cool foreshadowing in this one and dragon skulls and foreshadowing to do with the dragon skulls. There's our first glimpse into Varys and Illyrio's plans and the ways known to spiders that Varys mentioned to Ned just two chapters ago. And they're actually shown to us for the first time. And wow, they're huge, aren't they? When when Vara says there's some wait, little passages, secret passages, I doubt any of us envisioned the vast size of these passageways. These passageways that we have had, we've learned so much more about in the in Fire and Blood and World of Ice and Fire, yet are still extremely mysterious. The one-eared black Tom arched his back and hissed at her. And of course, with that, cats make every chapter better. Well, except for the ones where Joffrey is doing horrible things to them. But he's not in this chapter, though Marcella and Tommen are. And because he's their older brother, his shadow is always on them. They show concern for this cat after seeing Arya catch, uh, well, catch it, really. What were you doing to that cat, boy? They laugh at Arya and mock her for being dirty, but there's more to it than royals being snobby, I think. We know that Joffrey once cut open a mother cat to get at the kittens, though that was probably before his siblings were born or at least before they could comprehend what had been done. And later we see Joffrey killing cats with this special new crossbow. So in between these two cat murdering events, it's not a stretch to think that he's done other terrible things to cats and other animals. In fact, it's likely he's done this, and it's likely that his siblings have seen it. So it it casts an interesting shadow over why Tommen is so loving to cats. It might be because he feels a little protective because he sees his brother be so awful. It's the, it's this amazing kind of tragic detail that George is really good at inserting that I just didn't even think about before, but it's kind of obvious when you think, once you think about it, it's kind of obvious, but if you don't think about it, well, you never, you never think about it at all. Yeah. He's not the, also, he's not the first Lannister to, uh, lead to the harming of a cat. Yeah, that's for sure. And since Joffrey is a hundred percent Lannister, not half Lannister, this may be some some foreshadowing or some metaphor going on here. All this violence towards cats is maybe George R. R. Martin showing us that Joff's destructiveness is is going to harm his own family. Joffrey's going after you know other lions and himself in a sense, and and the murder of Ned is going to really backfire a lot, and his own family is going to suffer for it. But he's not the cat we're focused on in this chapter. Let's focus on the star of this one, which is the cat of black and black. <laughs> I am definitely down with thinking this cat is Valerian. Uh, this cat apparently once belonged to young Princess Rhaenys, who was, of course, brutally murdered by Gregor. So one might think that it fits really well that this cat attacks Tywin and takes his food and does all these other things. But it goes beyond that. This cat is foreshadowy for so many reasons. I can't, I can't even. So, but I'll try. <laughs> it, it strikes me as foreshadowing for starting off. The fact that Arya later is Cat of the Canals. Uh, of course, her mother, you know, Catelyn. Uh, she also skin changes into a cat later. The Cats of the Red Keep here we have talked about. Um, it sounds like this will be a really top-selling calendar here. The Cats of the Red Keep. Sir Pounce will be the centerfold, of course. Are you a furry? <laughs> mm, 
keep that keep that under wraps. And there's there's a lot of attempts in the fandom to interpret these cats as different metaphors. Let's let's take a look at the quote here. The Red Keep was full of cats, lazy old cats dozing in the sun, cold-eyed mousers twitching their tails, quick little kittens with claws like needles, ladies' cats all combed and trusting, ragged shadows prowling the midden heaps. It's one of my favorite quotes, by the way. Yeah. It speaks to how much George loves cats and yeah. loses them. I don't know. It's. I agree with you. And, you know, you can kind of see uh, there, just some one-to-one relationships, like claws like needles. You can't not think of Arya. Quick little kittens with claws like needles. Like, Ladies' hmm. cats all combed and trusting. That's yeah. Sansa. Sansa and Marcella, maybe. And, yeah. And uh, ragged shadows prowling the midden heaps. There's lots of, you know, just like they're talking about. Uh, when Arya comes back to the keep and they're like, you can't keep these ones out. They're like, Rat, you know, just like that. It's kind of like that. And then the the cold-eyed mousers, people like Marin Trant, whose eyes are dead and just ill in pain, people like that. The executioners, mousers, those are executioners basically. And the lazy old cats, like, I don't know, Robert's kind of lazy. <laughs> there's a lot of examples. There's a lot of older lazy ones that, that aren't worried about things. So there's a lot of ways to interpret this, but I think this black cat is perhaps the most interesting of them all, even though it's a specific cat and the others are categories of cats. So let's think about this one. Categories? Oh, good one. Yeah, I did that one on purpose. A black animal with a maimed ear leading Arya around without exactly knowing where he's going? Hey, that's the hound. He lost an ear fighting the mountain's men. The leading the leading Arya around without knowing exactly where he's going part, or at least going to different destinations, that needs no explanation. They traipse all over the Riverlands and change their minds about where they're going a few times. The Glagain Sigil is a black dog, after all, so you got black cat to black dog. I like it. He fits rather well in the chapter with shadows, right? We talk about shadows. Um, Bran's chapter, it's a, it says, a shadow with a face as dark as ash. And uh, when, you know, when Bran's having this coma vision. And beyond that, Beleriand the Cat and Sandor have other things in common. They're both angry and mean-tempered and hateful of Lannisters, right? Beleriand the Cat is actually nice to Sansa for a minute many chapters later, and then just in the same scene he hisses at her, which is kind of just, that's how Sandor feels about Sansa, isn't it? He can't decide if he likes her or not. <laughs> and Hound, the Hound also leads Arya to this place of death, the Red Wedding, though not on purpose. And here, Beleriand the Cat and doesn't intentionally lead Arya down to the dragon's coals, or does he? Now, we're not sure if that's intentional, but either way, he leads her to a place of death. All these skulls, a fair comparison to a place of death, I would say. Not current death, but certainly the slaughter of of the Targaryens was a thing, and of course, more than that, it, the, it references the doom, which, hey, well, the faceless men are likely responsible for the end of the Valyrians. So they're the ones who ended these dragons. There's your place of death again, killing the dragons, killing the Targaryens. But it's also a place of death thanks to Magor the Cruel's murder of all the builders who made this place. In some of the rooms, the red stone walls would seem to drip blood. Yeah, whoa, that's so cool. And there are many times where the Red Keep's walls are described as the color of blood. Uh, In fact, in Ned's chapter coming up, it's going to happen again. But this is the only one where they seem to drip. I couldn't find the dripping um, description anywhere else when the Red Keep's walls are described, even when it's raining on the Red Keep. All right, so the skulls of black fire here. The cat leads her to even more foreshadowy things than I've said already, a host of dragon-related plots. It's foreshadowing shadows from the shadows or something. <laughs> so again, this black cat possibly has 
a little Targaryen girl's soul in her, a skin-changing, second-life sort of situation, leads Arya to these skulls that we first heard of in Tyrion's first chapter. And in this place, she hears two guys discussing restoring this cat's family to the throne, though we know they're not doing it as loyalists. They do not love the Targaryens. They're doing this for their own reasons. There's a lot to say about this part of the chapter. A damn heck fine lot. This right here is so cool. We'll start with it. Yet somehow the monster seemed to know she was there. She could feel its empty eyes watching her through the gloom. And there was something in that dim cavernous room that did not love her. So the skulls hate her basically. And they would, as I just said, faceless men don't like dragons, but neither do dragons have any love for faceless men. They're still sore over the doom. Give it up, guys. That was 400 years ago. But the dragons don't love Starks either, right? Ares is, I mean, sorry, Arya's own father helped overthrow them after all. And that grievance is much fresher, to be fair. And among the dragon skulls, Arya hears these plans of Varys and Illyrio, which we've, as we've talked about, it must involve a hidden Targaryen, a.k.a. probably young Griff, though maybe John. Though, as I've said before, if John was their plan, we haven't seen any of that former foe shadowing to connect them. I, I, there's no hint that Varys knows who John is. Though it's not implausible, but you would think there would be something to point those two together if that was the original plan. Because, well, you could say, well, maybe he just took that faux shadowing out. Well, how come all this other faux shadowing is still there then if he took that out? I don't know. It, it just it doesn't feel right to me. I feel like all along they had this, he, George had this plan for them to have a Targaryen pretender, even though he hadn't worked all the details of that particular pretender out. He hadn't given him the name Young Griff. He hadn't given him the name the Blackfires, any of that. But he had the seeds of that idea. On the other hand, if you want to believe it was John, if you want to consider that possibility, Arya brings that up in, near the end of the chapter. She tells, she's trying to relate all this to her father, and even though Ned is, doesn't, isn't getting it, we can get it. And, well, this is what she says. They said you had a book and a bastard, and if one hand could die, why not a second? Is that the book? John's the bastard, I bet. Now, just in the same way that Sansa's comment about, he's nothing like that sm- drunken old king, got Ned to go, wait a second. This didn't happen here. Ned really could have been like, wait a second, bastard, book, killing me. I'm almost surprised he didn't react because anything to do with mentioning John, like people were talking about John, well, that should make him nervous because John is, you know, his charge. He's, he's, he's terrified about anyone finding out who John is. So, but for some, it didn't trigger anything in him, uh, partly because he doesn't take Arya super seriously. Uh, and... Also, partly because he's really tired and distracted and, you know, not at the top of his game. But it's either way, it's the same kind of clue. Sansa accidentally saying the the right thing could have been what Arya was saying here. So when I'm saying that there's nothing to connect Jon to Varys and Illyrio, maybe this is, is it right here. Maybe this Arya's quote is exactly that. I don't know. And I don't know of anything else to back it up. Anyway. But we've already seen that Illyrio doesn't take Viserys seriously. So the idea that he's their plan, like they're, that they intend him to be something more than a smokescreen, just doesn't float. He just really looks like he's going to get himself killed. It's just so straightforward. The way he's talking about fighting Drogo and Robert, it's like, how is this guy going to survive? Var, uh, Illyrio didn't expect Daenerys to survive her trip on the Dothraki Sea. Why would she expect Viserys? Why would he expect Viserys to survive when Viserys is just not as fragile or as fragile, if not more so than Danny, but also just getting himself into so much trouble with his temper and his stupidity, which, which Danny didn't have that problem. So anyway, 
it's a bit of a conundrum, but I still lean very much towards the Fagon side of things here. Anyway, they don't take Danny seriously either, like I said, but they do start to, but that's much later. Right now, they're only concerned with her because of her pregnancy. That's the part that they think matters now. Anyway, get used to it, Varus and Illyrio. Danny is going to get you to change your plans several times. <laughs> she is the main reason they, that the quote-unquote fat man's plans change, like the changing of, well, I forget the metaphor, changing of clothes or whatever he says. So Dragonbone is black, so the skulls are black. Varus and Illyrio applauding a return of the black dragon by the fire of their torches. Yeah, again, can't go too far with that, George. Hadn't yet come up with that name, Blackfire, but he may have chosen the name Blackfire based on details he already put. He's like, well, what did I lay out here? What kind of detail did I set up here? Let me use that. He may have looked at this scene or other scenes and been like, "Ah, Blackfire, that'll work. That'll fit what I've already put here. Maybe. Arya chasing a Targaryen cat takes to us takes us a really deep foreshadowing like wondering if she'll go after Danny or Aegon the sixth and her familiarity with these tunnels could come back around for her to execute that execute haha we've seen it in history a lot at the beginning of this chapter I mentioned how much more there have been uh, p- pages written about these tunnels how they've impacted the Targaryens in the past one of the key examples is the case of blood and cheese a brute and a rat catcher who knew these ways perhaps as well as Varys. He and his partner committed murder and terror on the Greens faction of the Targaryens during the dance by way of these tunnels. And because of that atrocity, there are no more rat catchers in the rat in the Red Keep. That order was abolished because of this. And now it's the job of cats. That's why there's so many cats around here. Someone using these passages for murder is a sure thing. Right? It's happened already, and um, Varus has already done it, right? Varus has killed Kevin, and then Varus helps Tyrion kill Tywin. But I don't think it's going to be limited to that. Those were important deaths, but I feel like someone more important is going to die, and someone other than Varus is going to do it. And it could be Arya. And how could, you might say, well, how could Arya possibly navigate the deep darkness of the Red Keep's tunnels? Faceless men are pretty darn amazing, but they can't see in near darkness. They learn to use their senses when they're blind, though, don't they? They have other ways to compensate for lack of light. But Arya has a weapon that none of the faceless men have. Cats can see much better in darkness than humans, and Arya isn't just Arya the faceless, she's also Arya Stark, who can skin change into cats, my fellow Astorians. What a weapon that's going to be for her as a assassin in the dark who can also use cat eyes which the Red Keep is full of. So, yeah, she's going to look through Nymeria's eyes some more, but if she ever gets back to the Red Keep, I don't think Nymeria is going to be the one helping her navigate these tunnels. It's going to be these cats that she's already familiar with, that she's already uh, skin-changed into. And again, I'll repeat, she's already been foreshadowed as their time as the blind girl. And along with this theme of loss of sight, we have this theme of loss of speech. And it's not for her, but, well... Varus is evil. No, not just that. Varus is the devil. He add a D to evil and you get the devil. And Varus has no D, but he is the devil. <laughs> With apologies to Ilaria Sand and maybe Tyrion and a few others, one of the most changed characters in terms of ideals and morality is the spider. He is really overwhelmingly interesting. Now, when I call him evil, that doesn't mean I don't like him. I like Victorian. I certainly don't think he's a good guy. I just think he's an interesting character. 
I can't wait to see what Varus does out in the open when he's able to work his magic without having to hold back. He doesn't have to play the spider and be play both sides and be, oh, woe is me. When Aegon VI is openly king and Varus is openly his master of whispers, he can do all sorts of stuff out in the open without subterfuge. He's been preparing for this for a long time, and we've been preparing for this for a long time. I am so excited to see Varus work his non-magic magic. But at the same time, this is not Conleth Hill's Varus. That version gave candies to children to win them over and treated their families pretty well. There wasn't some horrible trick behind all that. It was certainly cynical, but he wasn't, you know, secretly having them killed or done horrible things to them, you know, behind the scenes. He was pretty compassionate towards children, which is sort of a first level thing that Varus seems to be doing. But never forget what he's really doing to children. These children, these little birds of the Red Keep, they can't even taste candy. This virus has their tongues cut out. Even Illyrio seems to want to go easier on them, suggesting, oh, if they don't lose their tongues. But virus is like, nope, max savagery stays max savagery to ensure max security, both now and for the sake of their future kingdom. So if you wonder what George thinks of virus and his partner, this metaphor is Boom, powerful, and not at all subtle, uh, not at all mixed. A flickering light brushed the wall ever so faintly, and she saw that she stood at the top of a great wall, a shaft 20 feet across, plunging deep into the wo- into the earth. Black well, you said wall. Oh, yes, you're right. Huge stones had been set into the curving walls as steps, circling down and down, dark as the steps to hell that old Nan used to tell them of. And something was coming up out of the darkness, out of the bowels of the earth. <laughs> Did you see that? George's Varus and Illyrio are emerging from hell. Something coming up from out of the darkness. The steps that old Nan used to tell them of hell. The hell that old Nan. And old Nan's hell is probably like, you know, very picturesque and, and descriptive and over the top. So this is what this is what Arya thinks of. So Varus supports the dragon, which is a, a biblical reference to Satan. Um, and he takes many forms, i.e. disguises. Satan takes lots of disguises. Satan is a fallen angel. Angels don't have sex organs. Hello, Varys. And this line was just before here. If the room with the monsters had been dark, the hall was the blackest pit in the seven hells. George is flat out saying the dragon skulls are scary, the dragons are bad, but this is worse. This is Varys and Illyria. They're worse than the dragons. That's Arya's introduction to Varys. So finally, as if ours isn't enough of a devil, let's not forget that he's also convincing, charming, the devil, the original tempter of Adam and Eve, the snake. Well, snake instead of spider, but he sure did whisper in Ares' ear a lot, right? There's that. Now, in the TV show, Varus and Danny have, you know, their differences, but one of them was not that Varus is a slaver and mutilator of children. And do you think Danny might care about that? Yeah, because I certainly do. I think we can agree that Danny will not be so thrilled with that part of Varus's uh, arsenal of tricks. Speaking of tricks, George R. R. Martin tries to trick the readers here with the phrase, if one hand can die, why not another? First-timers for sure will think these two were involved in John Aaron's death, which just makes it so convoluted. Like, how many different people were involved in John Aaron's death? But I don't think that's what's happening here. Illyrio isn't talking about you know, why don't we kill another one? Why don't we, we killed one, why not another? He's just saying how it, he's referring to how it impacts their plans. 
Killing off an old man is easy for them. The difficulty of killing someone isn't the task here. That's not the problem. Illyrio isn't, Varus isn't objecting because it's hard to poison someone or hard to kill someone. That's not the issue. He's saying, hey, so a hand died not long ago, and it didn't cause any issues for our conspiracy. It actually helped because we didn't want the Lannister incest exposed yet. We want that later. So why can't we just kill this hand and expect a similar result? Varus, of course, says, no, it's not that simple. This is not an old man. This is, you know, it's a second death of a hand instead of just one. And, it, you know, that would cause, and it's Ned's, Robert's friend and all that. So there's a lot of different things that Varus points out. Uh, he doesn't directly point them out, but we can understand what, where he's coming from. It's certainly fitting for Illyrio to not know a lot about Ned Stark, though. He just, she just showed up in the capital, Ned, well, and Illyrio too, I suppose. Now, it's funny that Arya takes them literally and thinks of Varys as a wizard, given his hatred for magic. And she can't recognize him due to his skill at mummery and disguise. But, and because, gosh, he's just so good at mummery and disguise. And who could ever, who could possibly ever hope to exceed Varys at mummery and disguise? There's no one I can think of. Yeah, Arya is going to be way more skilled than Varys is. And Varys is really good at it. So that's exciting. And that the fact that uh, Marcella and Tommen see Arya as a boy earlier in this chapter is pretty interesting because it's going to keep happening and with intent, right? Arya is going to pretend to be a boy more than once, and she's going to be fine with being mistaken for one. In fact, she's mistaken for a boy later in this chapter, not just at the beginning, but also at the end. And she is, as we know, uh, someone who looks like Lyanna, and Lyanna famously pretends to be a man much later as, well, much earlier, rather, as the Knight of the Laughing Tree. Well, probably. <laughs> That's probably her anyway. And Jane Poole, the first one to call her Arya Horseface, which, you know, reminds us of Lyanna, is a reversal of Arya being other people. Jane is going to become Arya. And not to her benefit, as we well know. So now as Arya emerges from the sewage tunnel, the guards at the front of the Red Keep even get in on the foreshadowing and reference dropping. A lot, really. It's crazy how much these two guards get into the game, foreshadowing game here. It's not as rich as the Varus and Illyrio foreshadowing, of course, but it's amazing. Yeah, really amazing. Is this, is this really amazing? The convo with the guards outside the gate? Yes, it's amazing. Again, I, I pointed out that they see her as a boy, and they ask her if she needs a clout in the ear, which is a Duncan Egg reference who, uh, you know, Egg is a highborn, highborn? high-born high boy in, who looks like a raggedy peasant, and Egg is constantly, or Dunk is constantly talking about giving him a clout in the ear. Love it. Uh, they take her for a beggar, which she will later be in Bravos as Blind Beth, which, of course, references the, the blindness we just talked about in Darkness. Then one of them asks her if she's the city rat catcher. The city rat catcher, not the keeps rat catcher, mind you. As we just went over, that office no longer exists thanks to blood and cheese. But she might be heading in to take that role, being like a rat catcher and sneaking through those tunnels. Ooh, that one hits hard. Then she threatens them with their heads on spikes if they don't take her to her father and name drops Vanpool and Jory. Now, Jory's going to die in three chapters. I don't think his head goes on any spikes, but Ned's definitely does, and Vian Pool's probably does because Septa Mordain's did. That's what basically happens to all of Ned's household that's left behind. Whew. So that is a lot packed in there, but there's even a little more. Um, all, one of the guards mentions wanting to F the queen, which, you know, it doesn't seem to relate to Arya, but Cersei does do exactly that, sleeping with several others, in particular one of her guards, Osney Kettleblack. 
He's not one of the Kingsguard, though his brother is. So you can see that her adventure in King's Landing here, Arya, is, is a shadow of what she'll do in Braavos, walking the streets as a member of the poorest in society, learning what it's like to be among the commons, which also touches on Varys because that's what Varys is trying to do. He's trying to manufacture his Blackfire pretender king by having him suffer, by having him know what it's like to struggle and be chased. Arya has done that even more than young Griff ever could. Her preparation for this sort of thing is far greater than Varys could ever have prepared someone else for. Now, it's not going to lead to Arya being a king or anything like that, I don't think. That doesn't seem very likely. But it just goes to show that you really can't manufacture that kind of upbringing. It just kind of has to happen. It's kind of, it's, it's real. You can't, you can't fake it. And speaking of showing back up, after, uh, after he, she fails to convince her father of the importance of what she's seen, the chapter ends with Yorin coming to tell Ned that Cat has taken Tyrion. Whew. That chapter's so good. Let's go through some questions and some thoughts from Joe Buckley. Sira's lessons sets up Arya constantly repeating mantras and prayers to herself. It's a big feature in her arc later. Yeah, this is the first time where she's just doing it a lot. Uh, I don't think she does it at all in, in, her, in her last chapter. But between Arya 2 and Arya 3, there's been a lot of her... Uh, it's, it's implied that she's had several sessions with Sirio. So the source for her joke about Var- that, that Illyrio makes to Varys is, is, hits harder now that we know that it's a, how, how deep that joke runs. Because you got to assume Illyrio knows about the, uh, the sorcerer cutting Varys' uh, parts off and, and making a spell. So that's uh, a very cutting humor, no pun intended. Wait, pun intended, yeah. Um, Ned, Joe says that Ned probably should have taken Arya a bit more seriously based on all this stuff. And uh, yeah, I definitely agree, as I pointed out, that some of those things that she said were just too poignant for Ned to have ignored. But Ned's tired and distracted. The line, you have danced the dance before, my friend, is something Illyrio says. And that is a very cool reference to the Dance of the Dragons, which we're certainly headed for, very likely, with young Griff versus Daenerys. And, well, that's the Dance of the Dragons. You got Targaryen versus Targaryen. So they've danced it before, and, well, they're going to be dancing it again. Not entirely clear whether they're talking about John Aaron or John Connington, but it doesn't really matter. It, the point is that the dancing is coming, and it has happened before. History will repeat itself, and we get to be the beneficiary. <laughs> Here's another really good catch by Joe. It involves a quote. Sometimes she would hear her father's voice, but always from a long way off. And no matter how hard she ran after it, it would grow fainter and fainter until it faded to nothing and Arya was alone in the dark. Yeah, chasing Ned's voice is kind of um, harkens to his coming death, but also to going forward in life uh, as they move away from their father's protection and try to remember his lessons and what he sounded like and looked like and all that. Not unlike how Ned's memories of his companion to the Tower of Joy fade and how uh, this is just a common refrain for trying. Uh, it also, I think, references to the statue and how they're not able to, re- there's no one who knows what Ned looked like and can't carve his likeness very well. Things like that. It's all touching into the story of memory and how that plays into the story. Very cool. There's only three more Arya's chapters left in this book, uh, but those Bravos chapters... We're going to have a lot of fun when we get to those. We're going to be looking for the foreshadowing for them as we move forward. But one thing that I thought was a little strange is Varys not mentioning 
the threat to Robert from the Lannisters to to Illyrio. He's telling them about all these different things happening. He talks about the Tyrells. He talks about Littlefinger. Mentions lots of plots, but he doesn't mention the thing he says to Ned, which is that the Lannisters are going to kill Robert. Maybe they've already talked about it. Maybe it's just really obvious to Illyrio. Maybe it's been a thing for, for a long time. So maybe it doesn't need to be repeated. But I thought it was, you know, an, an interesting omission. From our Facebook group, Web Jerome says that Arya turns down lessons from Barristan here, which is interesting because uh, although Sirio serves to be a better teacher, uh, Barristan, some lessons from Barristan might have been helpful as well. And it's neat that uh, I'll add to this by saying that Barristan does eventually turn out to be a teacher for Daenerys' uh, young knights, like our favorite Tumko Lowe, the basilisk knight who is uh, who Barrison says is the best natural swordsman he's seen since Jamie Lannister. That's got to matter, right? That's I can't wait to see him in action. So basically, Barristan and Sirio are proving those who are badass teach. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and uh, you got to wonder, too, thinking about this, what if, if, if Barrison had been her teacher, what happens when Marin Trant, a fellow Kingsguard, shows up to claim Arya? Uh, Sirio defended her against Marin, but what would Barrison have done? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Might not. We might. Barrison might not have looked so good in that moment. He might have just gone, done his duty, which you know, duty isn't always ethical. Uh, well, if you're Barrison, you kind of think it is, no matter what. But that is a whole nother little philosophical conundrum for another time. Now, it's interesting to think about the Dothraki quote doing things in their own time versus this whole talk of the delay and getting them, uh, getting things to line up properly. So it's almost as if. Uh, these two things, these concepts need to be considered together and uh, how they work. So I think that's neat to consider that Viserys' impatience and the Lannisters and Starks going at each other in light of both sides of Varys and Illyrio and how they're trying to juggle. Much is made of Illyrio, Varys is juggling, but Illyrio is doing some juggling as well. Question from Kiara from Patreon. Any thoughts on, I'm sorry, Clara, not Kiara, any thoughts of Arya literally throwing herself into a dragon's mouth in this chapter? What also stood out to me was the remembered dream of her getting lost in the Red Keep, an endless stone maze, which has a similar vibe to her, vibe to it as her sneaking through Winterfell in uh, the season eight of the TV show. Very cool, actually. I'll answer the second part first. Definitely didn't think about that. Endless stone maze. That's very cool. Yeah, you wonder how that'll play out for her if she gets into Winterfell and is sneaking around in the tunnels down there. If, if something comes up through the crypts, which seems likely given the show gave us a tease of that. I think it'll be something more substantial in the books or in the books, but regardless, it's probably a thing. And uh, as far as the first part, throwing herself into a dragon's mouth. Yeah, there's probably a metaphor there. Uh, maybe again, this, it smells to me like she's going to be getting involved somehow. Maybe she kills Daenerys. Maybe she kills Fagon. Maybe she tries to kill Daenerys or Fagon and fails. Uh, there's obviously some issues with those theories because there's, there's maybe better theories for who will take those two out, but there's other pot. Maybe she, kills Varys. That is one that I think could fit really well given what we're seeing in this scene and seeing him be the devil and and all this evil stuff he's doing and and her surpassing him, right? The idea that she will be a better master of disguise than him, the idea that she will know the tunnels better than him, that she's even more dangerous than him in what some about, ways. What about the idea that she takes on the face of, you know, Oh my God! Someone if she takes like on Varys's face, Varys oh. or, or Young Griff, or I don't know, oh. like just like the idea of her being the dragon, I guess that fits really well. Good one, good one. Yeah. So this chapter really blows my mind because I do. Even though here we are analyzing it uh, after I've read the book, I don't know how many times, and we're I'm still going, staring at this, going, I'm sure we're missing stuff. I'm sure we're missing stuff. But there's more questions. 
from Robert Sokal says, I might be out of touch, but for me, the RA3 chapter is a stark contrast with how her father was envisioning her training. Any decent master at arms could give Arya the rudiments of Slash and Peria. But Syria is teaching her so much more. That's right. Why does uh, the rudiments of Slash and Parry are not what is going to make Arya good at fighting? Uh, I mean, it'll help, but yeah. And the question continues. Her entire, entire chapter is basically a testimony for how Syria is molding her into a bravosi duelist, if not a straight-up assassin. These lessons will save her life, but I cannot stop asking, why did he do that? Well, besides the plot reasons, obviously. I think it's just because she wants it. She wants it, and he wants to go along with it, and he wants to give... He reminds her of Liana, and it's what Liana didn't have, and he's he feels you know a lot of sorrow over Liana, and uh, wants Liana to maybe have things that she couldn't have had in life, and he's giving Arya those things instead. Not entirely clear, but I, I definitely think Liana's love of Liana is wrapped up in it all, one way or another. Uh, Robert Sokal goes on to point out that Siri, he, that Arya mentions Serio pro- proverbs eighteen times in this chapter, five of them quiet as a shadow, three times calm as still water. And there's several repeats of some other ones. But Fear Cuts Deeper Than Swords only comes up once here. But, of course, it's the the main one later as far as Arya when she gets afraid. It's, it's her go-to line many more times uh, when she's feeling a little bit of fear. <clears throat> and he fi- he finishes this comment by saying, Just in several weeks or months or however much time has passed, Cyril Farrell has influenced Arya more than her parents during all these previous years. And maybe that's a bit of a stretch, but it's it's certainly true. It's certainly stark. Again, at that time, it wasn't on purpose, that pun. How much Sirio's influence has has been important. You know, uh, I, I'd still say there's a lot of her parents in her in a lot of ways, but it's no doubt that Sirio is huge, huge on her. Certainly the most important adult she's encountered outside of her family, if not more important than that. Another good question from Robert Sokal here. What is Traitor's Walk in the Red Keep? Is it mentioned ever again? Well, actually, yes, and it's a really interesting catch. Thank you for asking that. I never would have thought to just look at Traitor's Walk. It's just to me, it's just the little section of, of the castle that it leads up to where they do executions. Jamie seeks out Illin Payne there to invite him to come with him to the Riverlands. That doesn't tell us a whole lot, except for that Illin Payne lives near there. That makes sense if it's the spot where executions happen. But the part that got me was it also pops up. One other time, it's only mentioned three times, and that other time is Sansa thinking about how Tyrion likes to take walks alone on Traitor's Walk. Tyrion taking alone walks on Traitor's Walk. How is that not foreshadowing, given that it takes place during Sansa's chapter, uh, not long after they're married, but well before Tyrion has turned on people? So, nice. Definitely didn't catch that one. Very cool. Nina Friel points out, I tend to think Varys has them killed when they get too old, I, uh, I'm not sure about that. Scott Wartman says, I thought they went to work for Illyria and that's why not a single slave speaks to Tyrion in his dance chapters. That is what I think. Although I'm not saying Nina's wrong because I think both are true. Surely they can't put all these slaves back to work in Illyrio's kitchens and mansion. I don't know that all of them, he would have work for all of them. And it does and also sound like... A lot of them probably like, wouldn't, you know, go along with it, too. Yeah, a lot of them. Yeah, I agree. A lot of them would have to be killed because they start to realize how what's, what's been done to them, you know, mm. as they get older. Although I guess their lives in Pentos have to be better than the Red Keep. You got to think so, yeah. Um, so I, uh, I definitely think that a lot of what Tyrion encounters in Illyrio's Mans are retired little birds. I definitely have believed that for a while. So I'm glad other people picked up on that. I'm surely, surely not the only one to have done so. Uh, John Hagee uh, points out uh, that he thinks that's an interesting idea as well. There's not supposed to be slaves in Pentos, yet Illyrio does have them. Tyrion clearly thinks that these people in Illyrio's house are basically slaves, even though they aren't called that. 
Uh, Kate Bertinsky adds exactly that it's a way for him to acquire slave servants in a roundabout kind of way that's less risky than outright slaving. And of course, they can't tell anyone because they don't have tongues. Woof. Abraham Gabeyu says, death comes out of the dragon's mouth. Septon Bar- Barth had written in his unnatural history, but death does not go in that way. Yeah, well, are you jumping in? You wonder about that. I don't think that's foreshadowing for her death, but it could be. We do see a young dragon, I believe, killed by um, being killed in the ma- speared through the mouth. You know, like a young dragon can maybe be killed that way. But yeah, I don't think that's it's not going to I don't think that would work on one of the bigger adult dragons. Like, I don't think we'll see Arya jump into a dragon mouth like, say, Jonah jumping into the whale <laughs> and killing it from the inside. But hey, what do I know? I haven't I haven't read those pages yet. They haven't been released. Thanks to Abram for that question. Uh, uh, Abram, come, questions come uh, from here, but also from Flick. I want to remind you all that there are great discussions happening about all the chapters on Flick. The link is in the video description, as well as the pod description. Eddard 8. The gang debates assassinating Danny, a.k.a. the one where Ned quits. Robert, I beg of you, Ned pleaded, hear what you were saying. You were talking of murdering a child. Rarely does a first line in a chapter capture the chapter in a nutshell so well. It's the current problem and the old problem between Robert and Ned. The arguing over killing of children, not just children, a Targaryen child. And as I said Robert briefly started to be less disappointing in the last chapter, but I guess he's of the one step forward, five steps back school of progression here. Uh, Really nothing goes worse than this. I mean, this is, Ned is just so disappointed. He really thought that Robert was a different man and nothing, nothing proves him wronger, wronger than this scene. Immediately after Arya's chapter in the tunnels, where we get some faceless man foreshadowing and discuss whether she might come for Danny, we have the council discuss that exact same idea, sending a faceless man after Danny. Littlefinger dismisses it. It's too expensive. But mm, this section, by the way, is called Vile Deeds Done Uncheap. But it might not be too expensive for the Iron Bank, nor would it cost any money if the faceless men want her dead for their own reasons, or if she just gets on Arya's list. But before they get down to that detail, Varus says this. He says, Yet we who presume to rule must do vile things for the good of the realm, however much it pains us. Which, you know, like the Faceless Man comment reminds us of the chapter we just read before this one. George tying little clues together, even though the Faceless Men aren't mentioned at all in the last chapter. We know because Arya to be thinking about them. And that just boils up huge right here. Uh, spoken like a man who is as vile as any, though, there, Varus. <laughs> vile things indeed. <laughs> what would you know about doing vile things for the good of the realm, <laughs> Varus? Jeez. But this whole room is filled with vile people and vile sentiments. Littlefinger makes the whole thing into a joke, the murder of a woman and child, because of course he does. Of course Littlefinger does that. And Pycelle, the Tywin Lannister fanboy, drops a line very much like the one Tywin will himself use later to justify the Red Wedding. Is it not wiser, even kinder, that Daenerys Targaryen should die now so that tens of thousands might live? And for anyone who thinks Renly might have made a good king, I'm not so sure about that, y'all. He is completely 100% on board with this. No hesitation, no hint of remorse. He is absolutely an ends justify the means kind of guy, which describes his campaign to be king, really. 
he thought, oh, Stannis is terrible. Everyone else is terrible. I would be the best king. Thus, I'm the one who deserves it. That's basically his argument. It, and he, so he's basically agreeing with Pycelle and backing his brother, which is a big important thing here. Backing his brother is really important. He's still trying to scheme to get rid of the Lannisters, recall. He hasn't, he's not making himself king at this point, not yet. He's just trying to increase the power of House Baratheon and, you know, maybe get a little of that for himself. He's trying to scheme to bring the Tyrells and Baratheons together, which no doubt will benefit him as the guy who arranges it all, as it certainly benefited Littlefinger when he arranged for the Tyrells to, to hook up with the, with the Lannisters. So there's a lot of benefit to being the, uh, the guy who brings these powerful parties together, these powerful, rich parties together. So he might be thinking he can still spin things to that. Uh, he might be also thinking, Renly's angle is really interesting here. The, he might be thinking that he can make Robert look like the good guy in the long run here. All these assassinations and all that. Let's say they murder Daenerys. Then he can say, get Tywin and Cersei and Jaime all out of the way and blame this child murder on the Lannisters, which is a really easy sell because they're the ones who murdered the Targaryens last time right? Tywin's and the Sack of King's Landing. So people are already predisposed to be against the Lannisters. So that's what Renly's working for here. And the, the guys over at Nauticast pointed out uh, very smartly that the Tyrells are arguably more powerful than Lannisters in the long term. They're richer and, uh, or at least as rich and, or close, and haven't had their armies brutalized and haven't built up all this hate. All, all, Tywin's legacy does not impact them the way uh, well, it doesn't impact them at all, really, except as long as they don't uh, get too close. <laughs> so that's really interesting to me, uh, Renly's angle here. But let's move on. The uh, This is uh, it, also, it, it's not just a what if, right? This stuff about the Lannisters looking bad and their reputation coming back to burn them is still in play. It's not just a what if. It's still going to happen probably in book six-ish just later than when Renly wanted it to happen. And I think it'll be Varys being the one to push all this, to, to push the Lannisters back politically, to get people to hate them, to remove their allies, uh, all in support of his king, Aegon VI. The Tyrells are more likely to take the side of, of Aegon, perhaps, um, if not become uh, lacking in enemies because so much of the Reach has risen against them because of the Friends in the Reach and all the Golden Company business. But, yeah, We'll get more of that later. Let's stay in this chapter. As I said in the last episode, this is where it feels like just about half of everything Ned sees or does reminds him of the Tower of Joy and or dead children, which those two concepts are related. And we just covered the latter as killing Targaryens of any age is clearly okay for Robert and clearly evil to Ned. Yet another reference to heads on spikes here, though. Robert says, I'll put your head on a spike. This one is direct at Ned and closer to coming true with every page. But here's a whopper of a line referring to his promise to Lyanna coming up uh, when he's thinking of the secret of who killed John Aaron. And what good would it be to reveal that secret? Some secrets are safer kept hidden. Some secrets are too dangerous to share, even with those you love and trust. So for people wondering why Ned doesn't ever tell Catelyn, well, he's telling you right here. He thinks it's too dangerous. And, you know, to me, I also think of Ned being such being so rigid about a lot of things. If he makes a promise, he's going to keep it. But there's also... Beyond that, apparently, he just thinks it's too dangerous, even though he can trust his wife. The next section I'm calling to quit or not to quit. Ned resigning has serious consequences. His moral stand is exactly that, a moral stand. I love him for it. I think most of us do, I dare say. But it is so hard to be upstanding that sees uh, moral stands as a weakness. 
Because it is. Because it is. Game of Thrones, you win or you die. That's true, I suppose. (laughs) Well, but Cersei hasn't told Ned that yet, so he doesn't know yet. (laughs) Littlefinger doesn't want Ned to leave. As a former poker player, I get it. Like an expert poker player that Littlefinger is, he sees Ned as what we call a whale, someone that's there to have fun, that doesn't care about losing money. Of course, Ned's not having fun, but he's basically that clueless poker player that is just donating money to all the other players at the table because he has no idea what he's doing. He's not there. He's not really playing the game, right? Ned doesn't like the game, but he is playing it. So Littlefinger wants him to stay like anyone would want a bad player to stay at their table to continue losing money. (laughs) It works perfectly, too. As Ned thinks to himself, He was not free yet. Until he was, he must play their game. He must play their game. So, hey, that poker metaphor works really well. (laughs) Then Littlefinger pretends to tell us, almost, what's going to happen when Varys puts out that killing Danny earns one a lordship. Let some sellsword drunk on visions of lordship try to kill her. Likely he'll make a botch of it, and afterward the Dothraki will be on their guard. Close, but not quite. It won't be a sellsword, but drunk is a sneaky term to use here since the wine cellar tries to poison her, and he does indeed make a botch of it. Varus is the one to suggest poison, too, and he tells us what's going to happen to that wine cellar before it does. By now, the princess near Vestro Dothrak, where it is death to draw a blade. Oh, nears. <laughs> By now, the princess nears Vase Dothrak, where it is death to draw a blade. If I told you what the Dothraki would do to the poor man who used one on a Khaleesi, none of you would sleep tonight. Yeah, you definitely don't get much sleep being dragged naked while tied to a horse, but you do get much dead. So, yeah, that's pretty rough, right? And the Dothraki, he's also wrong about the Dothraki being on their guard. It's more than that they're on their guard. It's that they're like, oh, we're coming to Westeros to kill all y'all now. So, yeah, close, but it's actually worse. So unfortunately, we now have to face awkward questions in the fandom like, was Robert right? Because, <laughs> hey, if he had killed Danny, then none of this would have happened. Show Danny does that dark turn, and maybe that justifies killing babies because this is a fantasy setting and prophecy is real and all. No, I'm going to continue saying no to that one. Robert was not right. But funny, though, he does call Rago Dragon Spawn, which got to give Robert that one. Rago really did come out as Dragon Spawn. I think Spawn is the appropriate term. And one of the things Ned warns says, we don't need to do this. What if it's a girl? What if it dies in infancy? Ah, And that's the one that happens. One of the contingencies. It did die in infancy. And yeah, I think you're okay with me calling it because what the hell was that thing? But as we know, the opposite of this intent actually happens. Pay attention to the fates of those who dare strike at children in A Song of Ice and Fire. George R. R. Martin is not kind to child killers. Sure, a few of them get away with it, but look, just pay close attention. You'll see what I mean. Robert is going to suffer quite horribly before his own death. And of course, far worse, the failed assassination actually triggers Drogo's Earth of Revenge, Oath of Revenge, which does come up way short, but leads to Danny hatching the eggs and, well, they clearly didn't have that in mind when they sat down for this council meeting. Well, let's see. We'll send a, we'll send a, we'll give a lordship to anyone who kills Viserys. And that's going to lead to dragon eggs hatching, which triggers another Aegon's conquest, but from a possibly darker type character. Yeah, they saw all that coming. <laughs> sure. 
Ned could have the biggest ever I told you so if if he and, you know, all these other characters were alive. But, of course, only Littlefinger, Varys, and Barristan are alive out of these characters. Renly, Robert, Ned, and Pycelle are not. But what a big I told you so. Like, I told y'all not to send this assassin after Danny. Look what happened. Because of you, there's dragons in the world now. Because of you, there's a Dothraki invasion coming. Because of you, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, Ned's not the type to gloat. But I will gloat for him. <clears throat> Robert also says... Have the rest of you mislaid your tongues, which is quite a choice of words immediately after that Aria chapter about little birds. So, yeah. By the way, again, I'm not so sure Varus will get a clean death either, though if Arya kills him, then maybe it'll be pretty clean. Uh, still, the biggest of murderer of kids or, or torturer of kids, arguably, is Varus. And uh, if he gets off clean, that'll be too bad. Now, Danny uh, slaying the lie of Aegon VI, a.k.a. Young, young Griff, could be a thing for sure. But again, she's the slayer of lies. It's not that she's the slayer of lies. So maybe Varys will be hers, just like she is. he is in the show. Mm, but I'm not so sure. Very, very interesting. As we know, the Varys-Illyrio plot is so much different in the show. So some comparisons are necessary, but a lot of them are kind of weak because we expect the plot to be so much different. Here's a a quote that Joe Buckley pulled that's interesting. I am not so blind that I cannot see the shadow of the axe when it is hanging over my own neck. That's pretty clear foreshadowing for both Ned and Robert. Are you sure you can't see the shadow of the axe when when it's hanging over your neck? Because, yeah, you're looking in the wrong direction. He's uh, actually, Joe points out, it actually makes him a bit like Ares. He's he's obsessed with the wrong enemy. Um, He's paranoid about the enemies that are far, far less dangerous than the ones who were much closer to him. And in fact, just like Ares, by being obsessed and paranoid about things that aren't really a threat, he makes them into more of a threat. Whoops. So here's another one. This is, this is what Joe says. One of the most telling lines in the whole book. It's so sad for Ned. It's what I was talking about at the beginning. And well, let's hear it. Robert, I ask you, What did we rise against Ares Targaryen for if not to put an end to the murder of children? To put an end to Targaryens. Yeah, right? That's not at all what Ned was about. Ned's not about just this one family and a a grievance against the Targaryens. But Robert, as we said, is a very simple man. He likes drinking and sex and being loved and fighting. And when another family pisses him off, they're his enemy. This is not a noble ideal of stopping the murder of children. That's what Ned thought it was, though. And what a huge disappointment, not just for himself to realize this is true, but to realize that he basically fooled himself into believing it because there was never anything that really pointed to that truth in the first place. When did What did Robert ever really do that indicated he was the type of man that Ned thought he was? It's because they're friends, and Ned wants to think the best of his friend. And, well, that doesn't always work out. We also have Ned and Barristan teaming up again here. Um, They're on the same side of the argument, which maybe this is part of what Barry's calculus eventually to joining Daenerys. Certainly it was a difficult decision for him. And certainly the main thing was that he was kicked out of the Kingsguard. He didn't take a moral stand for Daenerys so much as he got kicked out of the Kingsguard and he wanted to go be a Kingsguard still. Um, So important to note that while there's lots to like about Barristan, his moral center isn't that great. He's really kind of someone who is a follower, not a leader in that regard. As, as, as a warrior, he's absolutely a leader, and there are a few better. But, you know, people are complicated. People are gray. Being good at one thing doesn't mean you're good at the others. 
So here's another little part to the Ned Roberts stuff. Do it yourself, Robert. The man who passes the sentence should swing the sword. This is a bit of Bran foreshadowing indirectly here. This is the same lesson he taught Bran back in chapter one, and it's teaching him how to be a king. This is him instructing Robert on how to be a king. He, he A minute later, he says, did you forget that I'm king? He's like, no, did you? Which is just wonderful shade from Ned. You don't, Ned isn't exactly the kind of guy you think of uh, as being such good at wordplay. In fact, he thinks of how he doesn't have patience for wordplay, but when he's fired up like this, he gives pretty good, some good, uh, good zingers there. And, but more to the point, he's trying to, he's teaching Robert how to be a king and it's the same lesson he taught Bran. So very good catch by Joe there. Also, um, kind of funny, quote unquote, that this is the first mention of Roose Bolton <laughs> having him executing Barristan Selmy. What a, he suggests that Barristan be put to death. That's, well, that's Roose for you. A great way to lead into that character. It's also funny that Pycelle suggests that poison is a coward's weapon and that it shouldn't be how they kill Danny but then turns around to suggest the faceless men who use poison all the time. <laughs> so right on, Pysel, you do not know what you're talking about. Faceless men are cowards. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> and from, <clears throat> from Facebook, there was a discussion in our, of course, every chapter gets posted in our Facebook group, which I highly recommend you come join those discussions. And each of those discussions is, is uh, colors, colors? colored by a wonderful piece of fan art that is chosen by our Facebook mods. But, of course, if you are not on Facebook, which many people aren't, join Flick. Yeah, lots of ways to discuss these chapters. And this is a really, one of the discussions on Facebook was how Ned is just really just being this stereotypical second son again, refusing the evils of power rather than wielding it to do good. Well, yeah, very much so. It's kind of like what we talked about before, how he needs to be more like Cregan, how he thinks about how Brandon would have handled this better. Brandon having more of a, like a, aggressive personality of a, of a wielding power kind of thing instead of a holding back power kind of thing. All right, some questions from the chat. Nina says, mm, our cats are yelling at each other. Nina says the Tyrells aren't richer than the Lannisters. No, that's technically true, but I don't think it's true in the sense of how much wealth they can bring to bear depending on where loyalties fall. Because the, the You will see this in all the replies that I included. Yeah. Um, resources, we have resources due to... to uh, Wealth due to resources, which, you know, that includes things like money. I mean, money. Wealth includes money, really? No, I meant food and uh, the ability to produce crops, which is going to be even more distinct as winter moves farther south. The, the, the western fields will be wiped out sooner than the Tyrell fields. And also of import, Rob, his army, did quite a bit of destruction to the, to the westerlands and their farms. So I think in, a non, in non-wartime, things are a lot differently. But I think as things are... The Lannisters have less wealth to bring to bear, and that's getting worse all the time. Uh, they've lost more soldiers. So I'm not talking about pure money when I say richness. Uh, John Hagee points out the thing about food. Uh, Kate Bertinsky says uh, the thing about the reach, and of course the high towers as a vassal house if the, and the red wines, which depending on, that's why I was bringing up loyalty. If the red wines and high towers are loyal to the Tyrells, which is highly questionable. But if they're not, then that's, you know, the Lannisters don't have Bannermen even as close to that level of power as the High Towers and Red Wines. And Brian Eidolon says, the Westerlands analog for the High Towers and the Red Wines, the Reigns and Tarbecks are gone now. Yeah, I'm not sure if the Tarbecks were ever quite that powerful, but the Reigns absolutely were. 
Um, and <laughs> Abort Consciousness points out the, says Slayer of Lice. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, maybe maybe Danny just heard wrong. <laughs> it's not Slayer of Lies. It's Slayer of Lice. That's what it is. Yes. <laughs> Lots of lice down below the Red Keep. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Brian Eidolon also points out a little Greek mythology here. Um, the shadow of the axe over the neck is, is a half reference to the sword of Damocles, which in the context of a king who's gone from fat to feasting and drinking has extra significance. Great catch there. We know George is a big fan of history and mythology, and he loves to stick those references in there. And I'm a fan of history and mythology too, of course, but there is no way I could possibly catch all of that. I don't, I'm not a, you know, certain myth, uh, certain cultures myths I know better than others. And, uh, well, that's why we do these things partially live, to help you guys uh, fill in the blanks where we leave them. All right. That is that. Let's move on to the next one. We've got Catlin 6. The gang goes to the Eerie, a.k.a. the one where they ride mules at night. Oh, yeah. My lady, you should have sent word of your coming, Sir Donald Wainwood told her as their horses climbed the pass. We would have sent an escort. The high road is not as safe as it once was for a party as small as yours. Ned's captain of the guard after Jory is killed in the next chapter is Alan. And then Alan runs off and dies with the Brotherhood Without Banners. But after that, it becomes Hallis Mullen. And Hallis Mullen is known for stating the obvious. And he is, in fact, captain of the guards who states the obvious. So he is Captain Obvious. And I never noticed that before, and it almost makes me cry tears of joy to realize that a wonderful pun was hidden for so long, and then I never noticed it. Thanks, Captain Obvious, <laughs> for pointing that out. <laughs> so this Sir Donald guy, though, he's a, he's out to achieve an even higher rank in the Obvious Army, because Captain is just not uh, high enough for him. The high road isn't safe, you say? Hmm. Yeah, I think we know. But he does say as it was, which may suggest that Catelyn had good reason to think the route safer, maybe the route only recently has become unsafe, but oh, it's unclear. In any case, they arrive in terrible shape, and obviously when you arrive in terrible shape, the first thing you want to do is head up the mountain on an extremely narrow and steep path at night. <laughs> That's exactly what you're rushing to go do. But at least we get to meet the Blackfish, and outside of characters, George R. R. Martin gets to go off describing the veil in all its beauty. On the far side of the stoneworks, the, mountain op- the mountains opened up suddenly onto a vista of green fields, blue sky, and snow-capped mountains that took her breath away. The veil of Aaron bathed in the morning light. It stretched before them to the misty cast, a tranquil land of rich black soil, wide, slow-moving rivers, and hundreds of small lakes that shone like mirrors in the sun, protected on all sides by its sheltering peaks. Wheat and corn and barley grew high in its fields, and even in High Garden, the pumpkins were no larger nor the fruit any sweeter than here. I wonder what the best comparison and location for the Vale is. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm not super well aware of like where the great farmlands are in the world or where they were if they're not there anymore. Um, certainly, in some cases, you can just tell by population size. Generally, large populations mean they can feed a lot of people, but mm-hmm. you know that's changed over the years. Um, but really, the thing that I, I have such a dark view of all this, it's beautifully described. It's amazing. It's it's just, wow, wouldn't you want to live there or at least see that? But I just look at that and go, eh, winter's coming. <laughs> all that's going to freeze. Those little lakes, they'll be shining for a different reason. Slow-moving rivers, you say? They'll be quite a bit slower <laughs> when they're frozen. Alyssa's tears may freeze on her cheeks. But the blackfish won't freeze so easily, and the river he escaped in moves fairly quickly. 
He is most surely going to fight against the Freys and Lannisters, but humanity needs him against the dead as well. I definitely wonder. Blackfish, here we go with the Blackfish. It's, it's, it's great to meet him. And again, remember the show did him dirty. What was that weird-ass last stand he took at Riverrun? What is that all about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why would he do that? <laughs> no, the Blackfish lives to fight on. And we're excited to find out in what ways he will fight on because, man, is he capable. Man, is he good at exactly the kind of fighting the Brotherhood Without Banners is already engaged in. And, man, does he want to go after the exact same people that they're going after. But that's for later. For now, let's look at what's happening here in regards to the winter is coming idea. I can't remember ever seeing snow this far down the mountain, but maybe it was that way once in the olden times. So young, Catelyn thought, trying to remember if she had ever been like that. The girl had lived half her life in summer, and that was all she knew. Winter is coming, child, she wanted to tell her. Of course, this is Mia Stone that's talking, that that Catelyn's thinking of. And, well, Catelyn is... It's funny how Catelyn is thinking, oh, you sweet summer child. But Catelyn is also a sweet summer child here, because, yeah, winter is coming, she wanted to tell her. But it's coming so much worse than even you think, Catelyn. We learn that the Vale armies are holding in place, and after several books pass, that's still the state of affairs, though Lysa is no longer the reason why. Of course, Littlefinger has it now as Lord Protector, and he achieves this in part by granting the castle he's in right now, or they're in right now, to him, Nestor Royce. It would be his to pass his heirs, a new branch of House Royce, instead of by appointment, as the Gates of the Moon had been for generations. So Littlefinger's already coming in there and changing the political structure That hasn't started happening yet, but these are the important pieces that get moved around later. Nestor Royce is a little gruff towards Catelyn here, but that's going to be even worse later when uh, Littlefinger is uh, kind of basically bribes him over to his side. Catelyn has a really good line here as well. Catelyn had more faith in the maester's learning than Septon's prayers. You got to give a little fist pump for that one. Good job, Cat, with the progression there. But she also feels some guilt over John, which is uh, poignant while thinking about bastards after meeting Mia Stone here. Mia's really important to this chapter. And she thinks how Mia is sadly mistaken in believing that Michael Redfort will marry her. And Kat is right about that. In the Elaine spoiler chapter from Winds of Winter, we find out that Michael Redfort is indeed getting married, ready to marry, I believe, Yasilla Royce. So that clearly leaves Mia Stone out of it. From Joe Buckley, we're, he says, just here for the Brendan Blackfish Tully introduction. In a chapter which reveals a castle on top of a mountain, Blackfish is the most worthy introduction. <laughs> well said, well said. And indeed, he, she, he points out he may have a bigger impact on the story than the Erie will, and that's entirely possible. I'm not sure about that. Another great line here that Kat and uh, Brendan engage in. You got to read it. I'm a woman busy. can rule as wisely as a man, Catelyn said. The right woman can, her uncle said with a sideways glance. That is cool, right? It's 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 a, exactly the point. Yes, women can rule just as wisely as a man. But Brendan's like, well, men can rule pretty badly too, and so can women. So you got to keep that in mind. <laughs> it's like, yes, women can rule, but there's just as there are terrible man rulers, yep, that can be the case for a woman as well. And, of course, he's talking about Lysa because Lysa is bad at ruling, but Brendan is kind of also saying... But I think you're good at it. You know, it seems like you're a good, would be good at it. But uh, that never, obviously never really gets fully explored because there's no chance for that before Catelyn is killed. Two different worlds are kind of merging here with Cat and Mia. The, 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 the story of Cat or having interplay with Cat and a, a young bastard girl is really interesting because of obviously she has all these 
and thoughts and feelings on on bastards. But it's proving to her, in a sense, just how important Mia is here. Mia's skills are crucial. Mia's bravery is is highlighted here in the face of Cat just quailing uh, at at the at the heights and riding the mules at night, which we all feel that almost all of us would probably be terrified at this ride. Mia is ultra brave here and and that's part of what makes it work so well because it's not just something that cat's personally afraid of it's something that we would all be pretty much afraid of and that makes me a really shine because she's just she's just loving it like she enjoys it she's a climber who enjoys this rush or is so used to it so familiar with it she she likes being it's a sense of power almost um it, and that's the point this empowerment of of ability rather than birth and but you know the structure of nobility very cool dichotomy there. Really good undertones by George. Now, Lysa actually makes a pretty good point here. To bring him here without a word of permission, without so much as a warning, to drag us into your quarrels with the Lannister, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, so Lysa is obviously terrible to Cat, but she does have a bit of a point in that Lysa never show, showed any indication that she wanted to get involved in this. She says, yeah, I, it, she's, Kat says, my quarrel, they killed your husband. She's like, yeah, but I didn't want to go at them. I wanted to warn you. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, I, that's a fair point. Catelyn took it as a challenge where, it was, you know, maybe it was meant to be a warning. Of course, it's all bull because Littlefinger made her write it and all that. But still, <laughs> if we can somehow separate ourselves from that, yeah. It is a little, un, you know, a little presumptuous of Cat to drag them into this conflict against a really dangerous, brutal enemy in Tywin Lannister. So it's a fair point that maybe there should have been some warning. But ultimately, it doesn't, you know, it isn't enough to, you know, make Lysa uh, likable or, um, you know, ultimately it doesn't put her in the right. A lot of people still wondering about Littlefinger being sweet Ron, Robin's true father. We'll be on the lookout for more clues of that uh, later as we see him more on screen. Um, and of course, the, the, the <laughs> we have along that same line, we have the comment about impregnable castles just set up to be pregnated, according to Abraham here, which makes some sense. You have the veil, you have Casterly Rock, you have a couple of these spots that have never been taken. And you wonder if the fact that they've never been taken is just to set up the fact that they will, in fact, be taken. So maybe, maybe. Aaron Miller in the chat points out the veil always had a Lord of the Rings vibe to me. Yes, absolutely. Just the, the big the castle on top of the mountain with these narrow passageways. Yeah, with just the glory and the, the white marble of, of um, you know, kind of has a little bit of reminiscence of Gondor and some other things. I got that's a good call. Yeah. Abort consciousness says black soil is common in Germany and other parts of Middle Europe, as far as I know, which is a reference to the earlier question about where the veil um, is supposed to remind us of in the real world. So that's good. That's a good catch. Brian Eidolon says, given the mountains and political neutrality, Switzerland comes to mind a bit. Ooh, that's very good. Obviously, the veil is much larger and more important politically than Switzerland, but the neutrality angle is a really good catch in terms of trying to frame it. <clears throat> now, of course, Switzerland's also in the middle, but they're protected by mountains. So the protected by mountains part really works. And Abort Consciousness says, if you size it up a little and add in the lower regions for farming and the Bavarian Alps come to mind. And Shea remembers that <clears throat> the area is partly based on Neuschweinstein Castle in Bavaria, which fits in perfectly. So yeah, George probably had some of this in mind. Good job, chat and commenters. Very, very good. Phil, making the episodes better again. All right, two more left. 
Next up, Edard Nine. Let's do it. The gang fights outside a brothel, a.k.a. the one where Ned breaks his leg. Man, that first title really could just be an Always Sunny episode title. <laughs> yeah, really could. It's, just like, it's like the Seinfeld one where they're in the Chinese restaurant, you know, <laughs> except they're just fighting outside a brothel the whole time. <laughs> Instead of Seinfeld 4, it's Seinfeld 7 verse 3. <laughs> Not actually 7 verse 3, but it certainly does reminisce us of that. Remind us of that. Reminisce us of that. I made a, a word into a verb that is not a verb. I, I tend to do that sometimes. If not for the incredible Arya chapter, I think this would be the most important one of the week at Chitaya's, a place where there will be more scenes with another hand of the king. Events transpire to give Ned a storm of memories during a storm and some actual suffering and death, which leads to more memories. He found Littlefinger in the brothel's common room, chatting amiably with a tall, elegant woman who wore a feathered gown over silk of her skin as black as ink. This is Shataya, of course, whom Tyrion will deal with in making his secret rendezvous with Shay by pretending to see her daughter Alayaya. And of course, the secret tunnel that leads to the Tower of the Hand goes to this establishment, which might indicate that Tywin was coming to it as well. In any case, this Hiding of Aliyaya, the Shea plan doesn't go well. But even worse is this scene, not just the slaughter in the streets and Ned's awful injury, but this particular bastard of Robert's, Barra, will soon be killed by Janos Slint's second-in-command, Alardine. Tyrion also deals with Alardine to the delight of most of us. Alardine did that on the orders of Cersei, though, and no one has yet dealt with Cersei, though Tyrion certainly wants to, and Cersei certainly is paranoid that he will. In this chapter, we learn that Cersei has had several of Robert's bastards killed, and this is a good thing to remind us of because in the show, Joffrey was the one doing this. So in the, in the original canon, it's Cersei. Let's get ourselves reoriented to that reality. It's also mentioned that Cersei sells one of Robert's bastards' mothers into slavery. Now, this is according to a rumor, but the idea that Cersei was actually casually able to sell a mother into slavery, something that got another noble, Jorah, a death sentence... Well, according to the next chapter is where we learn about that. Another example of George doing that thing where he gives us the answer before the question. But anyway, how does Cersei get away with that? Maybe it didn't happen because it's a rumor, but maybe it's just more proof of Highborn can get away with stuff that even nobles can't. You know, Cersei's, uh, even Jorah can't get away with that. Partly because of Ned, but hmm. anyway, not all of Robert's bastards were killed by Cersei, clearly. Whom Mia Stone, for example, whom we haven't met yet, and Gendry... And Edric Storm, plus others, some of these unknowns and that aren't actually named yet, and Chitai's establishment, all of these are likely to come up again, um, I, probably. But, of course, the key is outside the brothel. And uh, before they go outside the brothel, Ned's having some thoughts that are leading us to the Tower of Pain instead of the Tower of Joy, Tower of Pain, Tower of Rain. Yeah, it's all there. It starts, enough, it starts off with this pretty innocent thought. For the first time in years, he found himself remembering Rhaegar Targaryen. He wondered if Rhaegar had frequented brothels. Somehow he thought not. Now that's a striking thought, which gives strong evidence that Rhaegar did not kidnap nor rape Lyanna. Plenty of characters and readers alike would disagree, but Ned thinks of going to brothels as dishonorable. You know, a lot of us are just like, brothels, that's just a thing. You do that, you know, nothing wrong with that. But clearly Ned thinks of it as dishonorable. So him thinking this... Is, is actually a complimentary thought about Rhaegar, or at least it's not a negative thought, certainly. It's definitely not the candor of a man harboring hate towards someone who raped and, and murdered his, or raped and kidnapped his sister. He's never reacted strongly to Robert's hate of the Targaryens either, at least not that we see. 
So from thinking of Rhaegar, his thoughts then go to guilt and blood and Lyanna. The streets of King's Landing were dark and deserted. The rain had driven everyone under their roofs. It beat down on Ned's head, warm as blood and relentless as old gilts. Fat drops of water ran down his face. Robert, Robert will never keep to one bed, Liana had told him at Winterfell on the, light, on the night long ago when their father had promised her hand to the young lord of Storm's End. I hear he has gotten a child on some girl in the Vale. Oh, hey, Mia. We just met her last chapter. The way Mia is woven into these three chapters here, these last few chapters, is really well done. Just the way she comes up here and there between different point of views just to kind of round out her character. It's super well done, super subtle, super super smooth. Uh, but just all these thoughts about bastards, of course, is, you know, keeping Ned's mind on Lyanna and Rhaegar and John. And then a Kingsguard shows up in a place where he's not supposed to be. And it's not just any Kingsguard, but still, that is another reminder of the Tower of Joy. This showdown is just too familiar. And just like the Tower of Joy, it's too unnecessary. It's tragic. It just doesn't really need to happen. And just like the fight at the Tower of Joy... It, it it's indirectly the fault of Jamie Lannister. Well, this one's directly the fault of Jamie Lannister, but the first fight is at least indirectly on him. He, he even brings it up. Once he slays Ares, the honor-bound Kingsguard of the Tower of Joy are all but doomed because, well, assuming they're found before Lyanna gives birth, because once they're stuck there with Lyanna pregnant, not able to go anywhere. If, if she gives birth, maybe they can escape the kingdom and come back. But as long as she's stuck there giving birth, they're basically doomed in that spot since she's confined to bed. And they were indeed found before they could escape and that baby could be born, which very similar language used right here for just after. Check this out. Littlefinger in the city watch found him there in the street, cradling Jory Cassell's body in his arms. Now back in Eddard 1 with Robert down in the crypt, he's remembering the Tower of Joy for the first time and he thinks this. They had found him still holding her body, silent with grief. Very similar. Finding that they find him cradling a body, silent with grief-ish. And it's in both cases, there's a Cassell mentioned. Uh, And the entire reason Ned was at the brothel, because of a dark-haired royal bastard. The same traits of the child he just found at Chataya's. And Chataya's is surely a place of much joy. Now, never mind that John may or not be a bastard. Ned may or may not know that. Just pretend it's similar. It's definitely similar whether John is a bastard technically or not. It certainly works. Uh, Chitaya is, is a place of joy, not Ned's eyes, but for, for us readers, I, th- I that works for me anyway, uh, thinking of it that way. Because of all this, there's so many familiar events. When we next see Ned, it will be the dream of seven versus three, five of whom die, where one dies just after, that being Lyanna. Not unlike the deaths outside Chitaya's. Ned's three dead guards and seven dead Lannister men And then shortly after, one of the other Lannister men dies. We still have, we have one person who dies shortly after. And in both cases, as I said, you have a member of House Cassell being killed. You even have the Lannister captain, the one who dies later, named Tregar, which Tregar, it sounds a little bit like Rhaegar with a T in front. It might be a stretch there, but but I I had to throw that out just in case you all agree. I'm not sure about that one, but I think it's relevant, at least to to mention, maybe. The Tower of Joys in Dorne may have been Redstone. Not sure about that, but it's certainly in the Red Mountains, and Ned sees the Red Keep as he's being carried away, barely conscious, and thinks that the rain has turned the walls the color of blood, a bit like how Arya saw them dripping with blood when she was beneath, but more importantly. Regarding the Tower of Joy, there's this line. 
Ned had pulled the tower down afterward and used its bloody stones to build eight cairns upon the ridge. Bloody stones. The stones aren't literally bloody, but he's thinking of them that way. And that might be, you know, a reference to their coloring being red. You know, if they were mined from the Red Mountains, it could be the case. And the, or quarried, rather. And the scent of blood, of course, present in this scene, as we saw, and it scares Ned's horse off. He recalls it back in chapter one, along with the smell of roses in Leona's bedchamber, blah, blah, blah. And here we go. Ned remembered the way she had smiled then, how tightly her fingers had clutched his as she gave up her hold on life, the rose petals spilling from her palm, dead and black. After that, he remembered nothing. Now compare that to this line. Drink, my lord, here, the milk of the poppy, for your pain. He remembered swallowing, and Picel was telling someone to heat the wine to boiling and fetch him clean silk. And that was the last he knew. So we have these remembering nothing, both lines with them, him, his memory fading. Which of course, memory is so important to this whole thing. You know what plays during that scene? What's that? Hello, darkness, my old friend. <laughs> yeah, know, right the on. sound of silence. Yeah, right on. There might even be more details that Ned was reminded of that we'll later look at as foreshadowing. Ones that we don't know about yet. Certain things written in this passage, I bet, are Tower of Joy references that we aren't aware of yet. If I could put that a different way. Things maybe related to Ashara Dane, the return of Dawn, why her family calls Edric Ned, which reminds me of Ned not having ill will towards Rhaegar, all of this stuff. There's still so many unanswered questions. And there's and the, and the other thing so interesting is that it's not anger. Ned isn't mad. He's not hateful. It's sorrow. It's tragedy. He doesn't hate Rhaegar for Lyanna's death, and the Danes don't hate Ned for Arthur's, as far as we can tell. Very cool. All right, some questions and notes here. Joe Buckley points out some of the same things about the structuring of George uh, that George has left for Mia. We both just really love how well he does that. Joe also points out some of the uh, hidden politics. He says that Renly takes in this Florent bastard plus Laurent, a Loris connection. Stannis marries a Florent. And if Robert had actually married Marjorie, so think about what Renly was trying to arrange with Stannis's marriage in mind as well. That would have been really quite a power block. The Florence are really powerful in the Reach. So if you have the Tyrells and the Florence, you've really got the Reach locked down, which is important because obviously uh, we're even now considering how the Reach might fracture and different houses may not support the Tyrells. But if you have more of the leadership united, if you have the Florence and the Tyrells and say maybe the Hightower somehow too, if all three of them were all on the same side, it would be extremely unlikely for the rest of the Reach to, to go against that. But if it's just the Tyrells, which it is kind of now, the Hightowers are kind of keeping out of it and the Florence are certainly uh, doing their own thing in a way, then, well, it's a much different situation. Joe also wonders about the slaver that uh, Cersei sold uh, the mother to and wonders if it's the same one that Jorah used I don't think so, because it would have been that the time would have been so far apart, but it's it's possible. <laughs> and what and what are slavers doing over in, in Westeros at all? I pointed that out earlier and said it's probably because these slavers are engaged in lots of businesses. And uh, you know, it's not just slavery that they do. Any cargo to them is cargo. Slaves, gold, any sort of trade good. Unfortunately, that's how they see people like that, just as another trade good. And of course, there's always the smuggling and uh, you know, the illegal slave trade's gotta be happening. Joe also points out the villainy of Jamie here. Wet, wet hair and smiles in the rain is a very Disney villain because he's so handsome and all that. It works really well. But it could be a little bit of uh, almost foreshadowing. This isn't actually foreshadowing anything. It's just kind of portraying Jamie as, as more villainous than he ends up being. 
But again, Jamie was going to be was set to be one of the villains, if not the villain uh, from the early plans of the, of the book. So that may be a, a little relic of that. And a lot of people wonder about Littlefinger going through the Lannister lines. They just let him pass, which some people wonder if this whole thing was a setup that, that Littlefinger told Jamie that they'd be here. It's entirely possible. I mean, how else does little Jamie know that they're going to be there? How did Jamie find out that they were there? Uh, there's plenty of ways. It's not like Ned kept it a secret, but the fact that Littlefinger uh, is obviously a major candidate. On the other hand, Jamie isn't going to hold Littlefinger there. Why would he do that? J- Littlefinger is a member of the King's Council, and this quarrel is with Ned. It's a personal quarrel. It's not Jamie's as rash as he is. He's not trying to attack the King's Counselors. Littlefinger didn't do anything to him. So... Yeah, I'm not bothered by him letting him go, but it definitely does speak to a possibility that this was a setup. We shall see perhaps some other time. Maybe Littlefinger will admit it later. (laughs) Uh, Just a couple questions here. Um, One from Nina. Thanks again, Nina, for the questions. Always doing a great job giving us more things to think about. She says that George R. R. Martin gives us a fake out. Jon Snow's face has him think of why men are filled with such lusts. Makes Makes us think of Ned himself and why, you know, as if he's questioning, why was I filled with such lust? Why did I, you know, why did I do that thing that resulted in Jon Snow being born? But of course, he's just confused about Rhaegar. He knows Rhaegar isn't a brothel type. He knows he's not like a filled with lust kind of guy in general. So why did this thing with Lyanna and Rhaegar happen? What's the deal? Is it to, He's thinking of it as lust, but we know the truth is probably more tragic. It wasn't lust. It was love. It was real love, most likely as tragic as it was. Another uh, note from Nina and Brian E is that the tunnel um, to the brothel is not from the Tower of the Hand, but from the stables nearby. Nice. That's right. It's not directly Tower of the Hand. That's right. Good, good point. Good point. I didn't, I didn't clarify that. It's good to be accurate. Thanks y'all. Thanks for that y'all. And now our last chapter, Daenerys 4. The The gang goes to face Dothrak. A.K.A. the one where Danny hits Viserys. In his stupid face. The horse gate of Vase Dothrak was made of two gigantic bronze stallions rearing their hooves meeting a hundred feet above the roadway <laughs> to form a pointed arch. I'm sorry. I said hooves and it made me laugh. Hooves. <laughs> I was wondering why you were laughing at I there. just realized I, I was said like, why hooves. Is that <laughs> so a city with no walls and buildings, just a gate. Now think of what a destroyed King's Landing might look like. It has a different, this has a different feel to it when you think about King's Landing being leveled. No walls, no buildings, just a leftover gate. Well, of course, in the show, the gate's one of the things that gets blown up. But as we know, there's seven gates, really. So there should be other ones standing, I think. <laughs> I think we need to coin a new phrase here. The quote that must be quoted. Any passage that's just too good to not quote. Some of these quotes are iconic, ones repeated so often in the fandom that we know them all by now, like fear cuts deeper than swords or... I don't know. There's lots of milk of the poppy. <laughs> that's not a phrase. That's just a cool thing. Like I, I apply that to other ones, you know, milk of the almond. That's what almond milk is, right? Yes. Uh, others, other of these great quotes are just a matter of opinion. So, you know, what's great and what isn't, it just kind of comes down to the reader. But we at History of Westeros are extra fond of the world building. So let's do this one. Beyond the horse gate, plundered gods and stolen heroes loom to either side of them. The forgotten deities of dead cities brandished their broken thunderbolts at the sky as Danny rode her silver past their feet. Stone kings looked down upon her from their thrones, their faces chipped and stained, even their names lost in the mists of time. 
Leith young life. Lithe young maidens danced on marble plinths, draped only in flowers, or poured air from shattered jars. Monsters stood in the grass beside the road, black iron dragons with jewels for eyes, roaring griffins, manticores with their barbed tails poised to strike, and other beasts she could not name. Some of the statues were so lovely they took her breath away, Others so misshapen and terrible that Danny could scarcely bear to look at them. Those, Sir Jorah said, had likely come from the Shadowlands beyond Ashai. Another connection to us with Danny and a, and a, and a something that pushes us away from Viserys is how much in awe of that she is, and we are. Well, a second later, Viserys calls it trash, <laughs> and which is, I think. Very clever by George, because on the other hand, it makes Viserys kind of over the top. But there's a point there, which I think that it's making us it's making Viserys just really, really easy to hate, as if he wasn't already. But I think the point of that is to not make us feel bad for him when he's killed. Just to just yeah, good riddance, and that masks how dark it is for Danny to kind of almost celebrate the death of her own brother, even though he's so terrible. So it's kind of a bit of a conundrum, um, and it's it's the way it's written is really sneaky, and I just love thinking about it here again with new information. Jorah continues the world building here, which we love, giving Danny a lesson in Dothraki warfare that will surely be relevant several times over, not just facing human armies, but armies of the dead. For example, something we've pointed out a few times is in the show, the Dothraki are, uh, a lot of their archery is kind of stripped from them. There's a few dudes shooting bows there, but in book canon, the canon, there is... Basically, every Dothraki is an expert archer, or at least heavily trained in it. So that's a massively... They don't just charge. They come in, they can pretend they're charging, and then wheel back and shoot arrows back at you. They can fool you. They do all sorts of things. Now, these these fooling tactics may not work so well against the, the dead, but they might actually work a little bit, because as we know, the undead are controlled by intelligent minds, supposedly. And so there's some room for strategy to work in spots like that, but, but more relevantly, the way they're going to fight against human armies when they fight against... Uh, Different armies of the Seven Kingdoms, different styles, maybe the Dornish, maybe the Reach, maybe, who knows, uh, the, the Veil. We're not sure who they're going to go up against. Anyway, then as they arrive in base Dothrak proper, there's even more world building, even more world building. As we learn, there's an interesting mishmash of buildings, but for kind of an ugly reason. Uh, they're all built by slaves, and the slaves build in whatever style they know based on where they were taken from. And the Sacred City area, which is where they are the crones of the Dash Kaleen a chill out. It's the widowed calls, of course. This is seen to be relevant in the TV show, of course, and given Danny's situation at the end of A Dance with Dragons, i.e. facing down these Dothraki whose sacred duty is to return her to the Dosh Kaleen. Well, it's not hard to see how that might go. They could be captured and then, or she could be captured and then go from there. We're also given a description here of how blood riders work, the comparison to Kingsguard, but similar. And that's uh, that's really important to Danny's arc because as she knows, and as we know, the Kingsguard betrayed Danny. But looking at the way Blood Riders are, the idea that Blood Riders could betray someone is, is a lot harder to see than Kingsguard. I mean, these Blood Riders are a lot more attached to their call or Khaleesi than they are to than the Kingsguard are to their king. I mean, there are some exceptions. There are some Kingsguard that are just as loyal and you know willing to die for their king as the as the king as the, as the Blood Riders, but. For blood riders, that's normal. They're supposed to die when uh, when their call dies. So when Danny dies, or if Danny dies, Ago, Ricaro, and Jogo are 
sworn by their religion to come and get whoever that was. And then regardless of after they succeed or if that person is killed or if they're killed, if they're not killed first, then their job is to die and join her slash him in the Nightlands. So that's definitely going to be different from what we saw on the show. We got blood riders that didn't exist in the show. Really? They just kind of vanished. Uh, Ricaro was written out of the show in season two. And uh, so that's, that's a pretty big thing. Um, I can't wait to see how that goes. I mean, thinking about Danny, right? Like thinking about, we talked about Arya going after uh, Danny as a possibility. Well, what do the Blood Riders do if they don't know who killed Danny? <laughs> what do they do if it was, you know, if it's not John in the books, uh, then how do they know? Uh, it's, it's it's really neat. And if they do know it's John, well, I'm curious how they react to that too, but that's a whole other story. Getting ahead of ourselves. The key moments for her character in this scene are in the tent. She starts to feel like a child again. That fear starts to creep up. But now, this time, she pushes it back and smashes not just it, but him, Viserys, in the, in the face. I wrote in the fact here in the notes. <laughs> she smashed Viserys right in his stupid fact. <laughs> After Daener- Danny passes that threshold of her brother's dominance and strikes him down, she feels strong and, like, free again, you know, not free again. She's barely learning what freedom, she's just learning what freedom tastes like. So she's starting to learn what extended freedom and extended strength feel like, which is kind of strange because she's basically a captive of the Dothraki at this point, even though she's kind of in charge, but not fully. Then we have a little bit of magic here. Uh, this this part I'm calling green egg and sand. <laughs> it's magical in nature for sure. Shea, take us away. Eerie fetched the egg with the deep green shell, bronze flecks shining amid its scales as she turned it in her small hands. Danny curled up on her side, pulling the sand silk cloak across her and cradling the egg in the hollow between her swollen belly and small, tender breasts. She liked to hold them. They were so beautiful, and sometimes just being close to them made her feel stronger, braver, as if somehow she were drawing strength from the stone dragons locked inside. Mm. She was lying there, holding the egg, when she felt the child move within her, as if he were reaching out, brother to brother, blood to blood. You are the dragon, Danny whispered to him, the true dragon. I know it. I know it. And she smiled and went to sleep, dreaming of home. Dreaming of home. Ooh, remember what remember what dreaming of home meant? And the last time she thought of it, it was a fire in every window of King's Landing. And she's saying, "You are the brother, rather, you are the dragon to her baby." But she should be speaking to herself, the true dragon. I know it. I know it. Nope, nope, Danny, that's you. And it's another time where the child moves within her when she feels a child move within her. And then later, when Rago dies, we see Miri says, or uh, Miri Mazdor says. He had been dead for years, you know. When I drew him out from within you, he had a hole in his heart. And, well, that's the blood magic for you. But it's just more proof that, uh, from here, that, indeed, Rego was alive. There's, that the child moved many times. But the fact that she's that the child is moving almost in response to this egg, and it's Rego responding to the green egg, which is eventually Regal, is, hmm... Yeah, that is interesting, this link, this maybe spiritual, magical link between baby Rago and the dragon named for uh, him slash her brother. Very cool. Something else we're going to have to keep an eye out for. Y'all be wary. Be looking out for more Danny dragon uh, symbolism like this. Stuff with Rago. Very cool. I love it. All right. So let's take a look at some Joe notes and some questions. And that's it for today. 
Given its geography and the Dothraki believe that this is where the Dosh Kaleen can best connect to the spirit world, it makes sense as the, as the Dothraki setting this as the center of, of their world, which is funny to look at the map and think of that as the center of the world. It's like up and it's nowhere near the center, but it's the center for them. And that's a, a recurring theme throughout A Song of Ice and Fire is, um, you know, it's all in where you're standing. You know, um, wildlings think of below, below the south or below the wall as the south, whereas someone in Winterfell thinking of themselves as the south is, is crazy. You know, they're like, what, the south? That's nonsense. But, yep, it's all in where you're standing. Okay. Um, Joe also points out, here's a good little quote that he grabbed. When I first went into exile, I looked at the Dothraki and saw half-naked barbarians as wild as their horses. Yeah, now this is, and now Jorah, over time, he realizes that that was a, a mistaken impression, that there was more to it, that they're a lot more dangerous than he first thought. And that's important. Jorah realizing they're quite quite deadly and dangerous and should be very formidable in Westeros is foreshadowing for them probably being very formidable in Westeros. And the fact that Jorah underestimated them is interesting because it might mean that so do many of the lords of Westeros underestimate them, which will make their tactics like feigned retreats even more effective if if the lords of Westeros think, oh, these guys will, will crumble against us and then see them crumbling, seeing what they expect to see, that's just going to make that trap work all the better. Some 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 Westerosi armies are going to get slaughtered and tricked into it in ter- as well. Now, uh, and of course, that s- speaks to these things about Robert. Jorah says, someone like Robert is foolish enough to meet them in the open field, but other people maybe like Stannis and Tywin and Ned would have wiser heads. Well, out of those four, only one of them is still alive, and Stannis is not likely to be fighting Dothraki anytime soon, certainly not giving counsel as to how to fight them, given where he's located. So none of these guys are going to be having anything to do with fighting the Dothraki, so who's going to be in charge? Mace Tyrell? <laughs> I don't know. I, he's not a wise commander. So uh, they could. this could go very badly for the commanders of Westeros, uh, given how it's being set up how they could be fooled. And of course, this is this stands in contrast to how the common folk will see the Dothraki, which is that they're quite terrifying. Uh, the xenophobia will be very big, and the fact is the Dothraki are very brutal. It's not just a, a cultural thing that, oh, one culture is different from another. No, these guys are brutal. I mean, there's no way. Their culture is brutal. Their religion is brutal. It's not a, this isn't a, this isn't a time for being progressive here. <laughs> the Dothraki are just bad news. They Their, their culture is in, in need of some, Rehabilitation. So is all of Westeros. Not to be not to be unclear here, but uh, that's another story. So a few cool questions here from y'all. Nina says there's this theme of Viserys mocking while being mocked, but not realizing he's being mocked and knowing that they can't understand his mockery, which is you know kind of proof of his cowardice and just how weak he is. Abraham points out that this, this spot has a similar feel to the Winter Town, which is a expansive, unkind of specified group of dwellings that only fills up during certain times, which is, that's a cool way to look at it. I didn't catch that. I like that catch a lot. Other people point out the Shadowlands. Really, did the Dothraki really get statues all the way from the Shadowlands? If you look at the map, that's really damn far. Uh, are the Dothraki really crossing the Bone Mountains to attack all the way in the Shadowlands? Probably not. But... They could have attacked places that had already fought against the Shadowlands and taken their treasures that had pre- previously been looted. But 
it may just be uh, a little bit of a mistake, not a, you know, like a, like a stretch for the world building. And this might be because, well, when this chapter was written, it's entirely possible that George had envisioned Ashai being a little closer. After all, Jorah talks about going to Ashai when, uh, after Drogo dies. And Ashai is foreshadowed in Danny's future early on. It just turns out to be George changes his mind and she goes just as far as Karth instead, and not all the way to Ashai. So what I'm thinking is maybe George just tweaked a few things and um, if he had it to do all over again, maybe there wouldn't be Shadowlands uh, statues here at Vase Dothrak. But it's, it's not that it doesn't work. It's just a bit of a stretch. Stirav Pike from Patreon points out that these these uh, the different monsters in the grass here uh, have some foreshadowing in them. He says there's the black iron dragons with jewels for eyes, roaring griffins, and manticores with barbed tails poised to strike. The black iron dragon uh, reminds us of Aegon Blackfire and the amethyst colored gems for eyes, all the different colored eyes that Targaryens have had. They're not always purple. There's some blue ones in there. And uh, of course, the, the red eyes of dragons themselves is potentially possible here. But that's pretty cool. I like that. You know, Aegon Blackfire has blue eyes or, or eyes so blue, they, they almost look purple. And they may actually be purple. It's kind of uh, his blue hair makes that hard to tell for Tyrion. The Roaring Griffin, of course, is more straightforward. That's John Connington, which is directly related to Aegon Blackfire here. Now, to be fair, John Connington probably hadn't been invented as a character at this point, but he may have, again, George had some of the, the seeds of ideas here. He may not have invented John Connington, but he may have had the idea of a Griffin house being part of all that. Uh, just So just because John Connington, the character, hadn't been given a name yet does not mean that some of these ideas weren't present. They just weren't fully fleshed out. And the Manticore... Well, there's a sorrowful man that it tries to kill her in A Clash of Kings, the next book, with a manticore. And it says, barbed tail poised to strike. So there you go. Coming for her pretty soon. Love it. Good catch there. Well, that's a great one. The world building in George R. R. Martin's settings always tells the story as well as it uh, describes the setting. And that's one of the reasons we love it so much, not just because we're so predisposed to loving world building, but because of George does it so darn well. He puts foreshadowing, he puts wonder, and just joy and fun. <laughs> All right, that's enough about, about George's amazing work at foreshadowing and uh, world building. Let's move on. That is the end of our questions and the end of the chapters. A little bit of outro here. I'll tell you what chapters are coming up next. We've got a few thanks to get to as well. So stick with us for the next few minutes as we wind it down. Next up, Brand 5. The one where they meet Osha, a.k.a. the gang fights deserters. Then we have Tyrion Five, the one with the sky cells, a.k.a. the gang's first trial for Tyrion. Eddard Ten, the gang fights at the Tower of Joy, a.k.a. the one where it begins, no, ends. Catelyn Seven, the one where Bronn fights Servardus, a.k.a. the gang has a trial-like combat in the Eyrie. John Five, the gang finishes their Night's Watch training, a.k.a. the one where Jon gets Aemon to take on Sam. Tyrion Six, the gang befriends the Vale clansmen, aka the one where Tyrion gets his first army. And Eddard Eleven, the one where Ned orders the arrest of the mountain, aka the gang becomes the Brotherhood without banners. <laughs> Thanks to everyone who came to watch the live recording and to submit questions, whether you were actually here to submit the questions or not, we definitely appreciate the questions. It takes us to new places and sometimes leads to new discoveries. That happened several times today. 
Thanks very much to Ashea, as always. Could not do this without her. Despite this... my bumbling in the beginning of <laughs> what order do I click on things? Ah. <laughs> it went very well. It was just a hiccup or two. But yes, thanks super very much to Ashea for being the best. Super very much. Super very much. That's right. <laughs> Thanks to Sir Buckley for his thoughts as well. Once again, make sure to check out the Isle of Faces podcast, Scraps and Scrolls, coming right up not long after this. Thanks very much to Michael Klarfeld. Check out claradox.de for his wonderful maps. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for our cool brief intro music. And thanks to our Benjineer, Ben, the audio engineer, for making our episode sound good and helping take some burden off of us so we can get back to writing sooner rather than editing, which takes a lot of time. So yeah, that's really good. Yeah, it's not like it's Aziz's favorite thing in the world to listen to himself after he just recorded himself. No one likes his... Pretty much no one likes hearing himself yeah, talk. Period. Well, there's a few people like that. There's Aziz sorry bit about Kanye listening to his own music <laughs> comes to mind. It's a little These beats different. are dope. Listening to your own music is a little different yeah, that's to music. me. Yeah, uh, You know, but that's a bit of a tangent. You definitely it's, don't, it's unpleasant. You definitely don't find me listening to our own show going, boy, my theories are dope. <laughs> <laughs> I have never done that. <laughs> uh, so that's it, y'all. Thanks again to our patrons as well. We don't do the patron shoutouts in these episodes. They are so long already, but the patron shoutouts come during our twice-monthly live streams and our scripted episodes, which are periodic, so... And our next episode will be Saturday, not Sunday, right? That's right. We've got a live stream Saturday, July 28th with Sean. And we look forward to see. I'm sorry, 27th, I believe that mm-hmm. is. Yeah, it had to be the 27th. Yes. So hopefully see you all there. And if not, you catch the replay. And eventually you'll get my birthday stream that's on the right. 6th. Yeah. That'll be, our, that'll be the first Tuesday stream of the month. So Fun things coming. It so that's, happens that's to line up. Very I'm like, cool. okay, I know what I'm doing on my birthday. That's right. A stream on your birthday. So anyway, thanks again to everybody. Streamers? What's that? How about streamers? Streamers for the streamers. Yeah, bring yeah. streamers for us as our streaming. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> okay, now say goodbye. Okay, goodbye everybody. Thanks again, and you know what's up, Valar. Reread us.